Yo, yo, yo. Hello, hello. What's up, everybody? We are back. Actually, live. In full effect. We We're got, about to... Uh, we got the Facebook people? No, we don't yet. Let's go grab the Facebook me. people. get comfortable. Let me drop the Facebook fam in the house. Going live. There we go. It's the only one where there's an extra step. We're live on Twitch, live on YouTube, and live on Facebook. And Join us wherever you enjoy the most. And not to forget, we're actually alive, you know? Alive and well. Still kicking. And Here screaming. on the Awakening. <laughs> kicking and screaming. Kicking and sometimes screaming, yeah. that's for sure. There's yeah. a lot of voice going on. Hope you all are doing well this holiday season. I like that we have festivals of light all around the world, independent of cultures. There's very many festivals of light this dark time of year. Yeah, and the feasting, too. So it's mm -hmm. like we've made it to this spot. We're really depressed. Let's get together, eat some food, you know, drink something that makes us feel Celebrate a little rosy. Because yeah. it's about to get cold and dreary for a long yeah. time. And But yeah, and then we dress everything up with light and cheer and joy and then we have these festivals to kind of brighten our mood in the midst of it of sharing and giving thanks giving gifts so yeah I want my happy holidays back. what's that the, the, you know the holiday season's nice and all but i want my sunlight back yeah but, uh, yeah uh, sun was nice today it came out around here around our way here in the mountains the blizzards this weekend's supposed to be brutal. Is it? Yeah. I haven't been. To, I just saw something. Yeah. It's a notification, and uh, from the weather app. Uh, yeah, I guess it's coming then. Uh huh. What are we looking at? Uh, a unique, very large, kind of blizzard cell. Like this year was a double La Nina year, so um, when those tend to happen, we get funky weather throughout the whole cycle. The sun's doing funny stuff. Our magnetosphere is doing funny stuff. The ocean currents are doing some funny stuff. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing some funny stuff. <laughs> so it's uh, what happens. Hey, it's been a while since we got a really good blizzard, man. Like, I remember when I was a kid, you know, it's like, what was it? There was one in like 94, 95, and then one in like 97, 98. And yes. that, that was like, you know, like four feet of snow. I it remember was the awesome. 90, the the 94 one, that was huge. Yeah. yeah, we were out of school for like a month. Yeah, that was the year that uh, I think that was the year that uh, I got my um, inoculations. Like a few weeks, weeks as a kid. So uh, and they had oh, to really? stick me in both legs and both arms because I was squirming too Fine. much. So I was sore in all of them. And me and my sister were walking down the street in the snow in our overly puffy get-ups, looking like penguins because we're just <laughs> stiff, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like stiff and fluffy. Uh, that was cute. But that was the year my dad, he, uh, like, carved, like, a bust of the Mother Mary and Jesus, or not a bust, a relief of Mary and Jesus, and then, like, Whoa. made a parking garage for our uh, for our cars. Uh, we lived in a townhouse at the time, so it was, like, two slots with, like, cut snow bricks, <laughs> and then he carved those, those little dog dragon things that are outside of, like... Uh, uh, Chinese temples and and uh, palaces and stuff. He carved a bunch of those going up the, going up the stairs to the, um, to the townhouse. Oh wow, cool. man! I think he made the it newspaper that year too with his, uh, 
his snow carvings. Oh, man, that was the year where we had an engineer neighbor that converted his backyard, which are those long, narrow backyards, into like a like a tube slalom course that went back and forth and back Fun. and forth. And then um, I lived on like, it wasn't really a cul-de-sac. It was just like a, a dead-end street that went into the park. But all the snow got piled up like, you know, like 10 feet high. So we had an awesome starting point to, sl- you know, slide down the street and see how far you could get. Yes, yeah, yes, that was fun. I remember bobsledding through the neighborhood uh, during one of the big ice storms. Yeah. Yeah, waxing up the blades, starting in the high part of the neighborhood. And I, I remember it was so frozen. It was like several inches thick that we were just going up and down people's yards, yeah. down the street. And it was going on for blocks. You know, we got to the high point of the neighborhood and then we would race all the way down. I remember my first time with like super high speed sledding. It was probably like 99 or 2000 when we got like serious ice. And I got one of those, you know, radio flyer sleds, you know, with the, the hard rails on them. And, um, you know, you could flex them to change direction. You're supposed to sit on them, right? Yeah. And use your feet. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm no, but we would lay down on your belly. Ends, yeah. And the, the roads were nothing but like solid ice and i got to the point where i realized how dangerous these things were because i was going like 35 miles an hour down this hill at, at this place claymont out in the woods and it was long enough and i was like going 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 to the point where like i knew if i bailed i was gonna be hurt bad like bad bad like ridiculous bad so big I, time man i hit a mailbox oh, the only thing that dude. saved me from hitting that four by four post of the mailbox was my pants getting caught on the bottom end of the bobsled oh yeah right I had these big giant jinkos on too. I was so upset about my jinkos. Uh, God, you know the late eighties, nineties, and early two thousands. That was it was pretty good. We used to do Wild things times, that we could man. get really hurt. You know, I remember. Oh yeah, we being used to a kid eat the making fish out of the local creek. <laughs> yeah, go right. fishing there. Get the weird looking crawfish. <laughs> Storm drainage water. You yeah. Know. You're like, oh, oh, yeah, look at this. Stuff. It's great. Yeah. I uh, when I lived in Amber Meadows in Frederick, uh, Maryland. We were right across the street from Fort Detrick, which is like one of the main, you know, military bio facilities. And mm-hmm. uh, the creek that we played in, that we catch crawfish out of, that we messed around and ran right underneath Fort Detrick. And <laughs> oh no, man! Uh, Fort yeah, Detrick's got know. some uh, spotty history when it comes to like weird chemicals getting into uh, the ground. Like that, there's a a myth that that exercise running track on that bit of land is actually like severely contaminated dirt, so they don't want to put anything on top of it except just the asphalt running track and call it a park oh boy yeah i i cannot confirm or deny i don't know uh but that was that was the rumor yeah, we had some funky looking crayfish uh and there they would get like you know like that freaking big and you know um like one huge claw and then a little claw and i know those are like the males or um you know it's a sex specific thing but then you'd see ones with like nubs of what looks like it was trying to be another claw off of it or weird colors or yeah it was <laughs> don't eat the three-eyed fish <laughs> yeah right well isn't there oh no that's a lizard never mind the three-eyed lizard that has its third eye still kind of there and it can sense uh like you know like if a shadow goes over top of its head it can tell interesting yeah yeah the three-eyed lizard look it up it's pretty cool so we're back to it now man yes we're on to yes. episode 11 episode of 11 awakening from the meaning crisis this part is going to be interesting. We get into higher states of consciousness. This is part one of a two-part series or lecture, I guess, on this subject. 
So this is going to be super ultra intriguing. We just came from uh, an episode on consciousness. And in fact, we just did our reflection series covering the first 10 episodes of this series. So yeah, we're, we're excited to be able to get back into it now. Yes. So yeah, join us. Let's go ahead and uh, switch on over here and begin. We got sound. sound. Hold on a second. Hold on. Press pause. Let's make sure it's not Let's on mute. Turn it up on our side. It's just quiet. Here we are. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Last time we were discussing the axial age uh, within ancient oh, India. And we were we were focusing in on the pivotal figure of Siddhartha Gautama, uh, the Buddha. And we had been talking about um, his particular story. We talked about the two modes of being um, that were being represented in his story of leaving the palace, the having mode and the being mode. <clears throat> and we talked about modal confusion and about overcoming it. We followed him to uh, the, where he's sitting under the Bodhi tree and he achieves um, a deep kind of realization, a deep state of enlightenment. Along the way, we had discussed um, what mindfulness is, how mindfulness operates through attentional scaling, and how it can increase your cognitive flexibility, your capacity for insight. And then we were trying to draw this all together with some cognitive science, a discussion of what is it uh, to experience enlightenment. Now, I'm not offering right now a complete account or anything uh, like a comprehensive theory of enlightenment. We're going to be slowly working towards that as we move through uh, this lecture series. But I do want to get into and com uh, continue the discussion of these higher states of consciousness. So if you remember, they're very problematic, uh, but that they're at the core of many of the axial age um, world religions and uh, uh, foundational philosophies. This is the idea that people have an alternative state of consciousness that they regard as somehow more real than their everyday uh, state of consciousness, and that's problematic precisely because we tend to judge realness by how well we get an, uh, an overall coherence in our intelligibility, how we're making sense of things. But in these altered states that are very different from our everyday consciousness and therefore do not cohere with it, people do the alternative. Instead of rejecting it the way we reject dreaming, for example, because it doesn't cohere with our everyday experience, people reject the everyday experience as illusory and they say that this state of consciousness somehow gives them an improved access to reality. And as you remember, as we've been going through the Axial Age revolution and the sense of wisdom and meaning that is attendant upon it, this ability to transcend through illusion and get connected to what is more real is central to what wisdom means and having some deep sense of connectedness to reality is also central to what it is to regard one's life as authentically meaningful in some fashion. So that was the problem we had set up, the problem of higher states of consciousness. Now I want to start by talking about what it's like uh, to give a theory. We talked about this also last time. We want a theory that's both descriptively adequate and prescriptively adequate. A descriptive theory should tell me, like, give me a good explanation for why these higher states of consciousness have the experiential feel that they have, 
why the, and why they're able to produce these deep kinds of transformations. Because if you remember, what typically happens is because people have sensed this deep connectedness to reality, and because being connected to reality is one of fundamental ways in which we make our lives meaningful, people will radically transform their whole lives, their sense of self, their interpersonal relationship, in order to maintain and enhance that connectedness to this deepened reality. So we need to explain, give a descriptively adequate explanation, and this has to work at multiple levels, and this is where cognitive science is so important uh, because of the way it tries to bridge between these various levels and disciplines. We need to give an account of the psychological processes, of the information processes, and ultimately uh, the brain processes that are at work. Then we need a prescriptively adequate theory of higher states of consciousness. We need an account that explains why it might be considered rationally justifiable that these states authorize and legitimate such transformations? Can we see why these states should be listened to when they claim to give us access to a deeper reality? Now, in order to carry out the first one, seeing what the Siddhartha was going through, Right? when he's achieving this higher state of consciousness, this awakened state. And if you remember last time, we talked about how, how comprehensively extended this is, not only qualitatively through the world religions, but just quantitatively through the population. The 30 to 40% of people uh, report these awakening experiences and the resulting deep transformation. So in order to get through that, let's talk about what what does it feel like to be in such a state? And because we have these surveys and we have the work of Newberg and Taylor and we have lots of first-person accounts, we can draw some general pictures of what's going on. So there's three components we want to look at. We want to look at how is the world being experienced? How is the self being experienced? And how is the relationship between the world and the self being experienced? So let's start on the world side. So people report the following things. They report um, a tremendous sense of clarity. And this is both perceptual and cognitive. So the world seems extremely clear to them and makes sense to them in a way that it hasn't before. The perceptual part of that clarity is often, ex uh, often experienced as bright. Things are shining. Um, and that's the original meaning of glory, for example. Uh, uh, to go back to the Bible, for example, the term that is most often used to describe God is glory, which is not a moral term. It's a term about how sort of shining um, God is, how, how bright it is. Now, you remember, uh, that's a feature that people also reliably report in the flow experience, that everything seems very vivid and in bright um, and intense. Now, what's interesting is that while people describe this clarity, and notice how this is going to pick up on what we talked about when we talked about mindfulness, they talk about both an expansion of vision, so it's very comprehensive. They get almost like they're somehow aware of the whole of the world, but they also are aware of finite details. So this is captured, for example, in Blake's famous poem, right? To see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and to spend eternity in an hour. 
So you get this deep interpenetration of sort of everything and the finite details. And you can see that, so what you're getting is this massive expansion of that attentional scaling that we talked about mindfulness enhancing and thereby enhancing our capacity to break frame and make frame and get fundamental insight. And pay attention to the word insight, seeing into reality. So, overall there's an increased sense of making sense of things, right? Making sense of things. So the world is both intricate and interesting in this extended and enhanced and shining way. So almost universally, people describe this experience as the world is beautiful. It's deeply beautiful to them. And we'll come back at some point to talk about the connections between beauty and truth, uh, particularly the work of Skari about this. The world is very alive. It seems very alive during these experiences because it's so pregnant with energy and significance. And all of this, all of this comprehensiveness, but intricate detail, the shining, the beauty, the making sense, all of this comes together in the notion of oneness. There is somehow an underlying oneness to everything. There's deep and profound integration, which of course, makes sense given that very often when we are explaining something, we are finding what unifies and integrates them together. What's happening on the side of the self? What's happening on the side of the self is people report a profound sense of peace. And this is not peace in an empty, just lack of conflict. It's very similar to what we talked about in Plato. And you're probably seeing Plato's ideas about anagoge resonating with this. I hope you're seeing that. But remember in Plato, right, that inner state of peace is one of inner harmony. When all of the various components of your personality and your cognition are mutually, optimally working together in concert. And this is the kind, what people report. They often report that this is the greatest sense of peace they've ever experienced in their life. And if you remember in Plato, this sense of peace, right, is connected to and resonates with this enhanced sense of connectedness to reality. And interestingly enough, that's what we're seeing in these, um, in these descriptions. People also describe uh, experiencing profound joy. Now, of course, we've lost the sense of what this word means. Uh, we've lost it pr precisely in words like enjoyment, where enjoyment means having fun or pleasure. But joy is not the experience of fun or pleasure. Joy is the positive emotion you have when you experience a deep connection to what is good. So joy is the experience you have of this is really, really good. Okay. Interestingly, people often report a fundamental change in their sense of self, and we're going to come back to this. They report two things. They'll often report that their normal sense of self has disappeared, their egocentric, autobiographical sense of self has disappeared, and if you remember, that's, that's continuous with what we saw when people are in the flow state. They report that self-consciousness, that autobiographical narrative self is disappearing. They often also report remembering 
in the sense we talked about when we talked about sati and remembering the being mode. They remember, they say, I remember my true self. I remember who I really am. So there's a profound connection inward to the core machinery of the self that is at one with a profound sense of connecting to the underlying pattern that governs and makes intelligible reality. People report that in this state they have a tremendous uh, sense of energy and vitality, again analogous to the flow state. And finally, they report that they're going, they often use this term, there's a tremendous sense of insight and understanding. Again, uh, continuous with the flow state. Now what about the relation? So this is deep connection, profound connectedness, deep at-one-ment, again like the flow state, but even more, people feel so at-one that they start to feel that they're participating in their reality that they're connected to. They start to feel like they're sharing identity to it. And this you know, way of thinking about this is when we talked about Aristotle's notion of the conformity theory of knowing. They, they feel so deeply conformed to this underlying reality from the very core of their being that they are experiencing an identification with it. But this participatory knowing is so superlative and it's so profound and so transformative that inevitably people just say that the experience, that this connection is ineffable. And we, we noted this the last time we were talking about how is it that these experiences that have no right, articulable declarative content because they're ineffable. You can't put them into words. You can't put them into propositional thought. Nevertheless, are considered so, so loaded with, so capable of bearing the signature of ultimate reality or realness for people. Break. Internet's running a little bit slow, so it was yeah. kind of wonky, like getting it to begin there for you guys. I hope you caught everything. He was just reviewing it gets the a uh, previous weird episode the, to set us up. When the temperatures change, it's the cold. It's the yeah. cold air. That's what it is. That yeah, messes with the connectors and all that stuff, and they expand and contract, and it gets funny. Yeah. So, you can, so far, anybody tuning in, I'm sure you can see we're about to get into some really intriguing subject matter. So we're going to come up with a descriptively adequate explanation and a functionally adequate explanation of it, the state of enlightenment of higher states of consciousness that makes sense for cognitive science uh, from the psychological perspective to the actual understanding of the physiology and what is happening yeah um, so, so what do you and why why is this helpful and useful to human beings of course as well yeah, so a, a descriptive and prescri uh, prescriptive prescriptive thank you yes um I was looking for that yeah so um, why is this so relevant why does this give give us such a deeper sense of reality yeah so the descriptively adequate explanation um has to work on multiple levels this is where cognitive science so the cognitive science end is the describing of what's actually yeah, happening, happening physiologically and in then the, the prescriptive is like why 
Why? Why are? Yes. Why? Why is this deep connectedness? Yeah, this Transformation why? happening mm-hmm. for human beings. Yeah. Yes. Then that's <laughs> awesome. That's actually going to help us understand and be able to understand one another and bridge our science and spiritual traditions once again. Mm-hmm. And thank God for John Fervaki helping legitimate the states of self-transcendence, of enlightenment, of self-realization, yeah, and you however we term them. The 30 to 40% of, th- yeah, of that, people that would seem be the to have had experiences that are in this territory. Yeah, and that he mentioned the word quantitative. So the qualitative end of it would be, qualitative would be like all the religions in the world are all trying to do this, Mm -hmm. have this Mm -hmm. quality. And then 30 to 40% of people have this experience. So that's the quantity of people having this experience. And like ultimately the goal would be, you know, we need to get them numbers up. Those are rookie numbers. We need to, you know, get up to 60, 70, 80, 90, 100% of us, you know. Yeah, well, we're functioning optimally. Mm -hmm. We're much more widely considerate we're able to come to conciliation, compromise much more easily, and we're actually able to tackle very complex, challenging problems that face us as a species together in a prescriptive manner. Mm-hmm. Proscriptive? Prescriptive? I think it's pre- like to pre- prescri- prescribe. Right, yes. Not proscribe, but prescribe. Uh, yeah, I was wondering if there's a difference um, between the two. I, I, think, I think there I, might be a proscribe well, pre- and a prescribe. Pre is before and pro is for. It's doing up. Um, so yeah. yeah, so we're going to come up with a descriptively adequate explanation of this, or description of this, and let's let's get into a little bit, like what what is this higher state of consciousness? How it you know mm-hmm. gives us a sense of deep communion with everything mm-hmm. and everyone around us. We feel a sense of timelessness. Mm-hmm. So all of this is synonymous with the flow state as yeah. well. What people report when they're in that flow state, and he he breaks it down into uh, three more bright. Three, three parts, which are. I, I find beneficial for understanding this. There's the the world. So the world is more mm-hmm. the bright, the glorious, you know, the the shining, um, you know. Yes, yes. The world in a grain of sand. Actually, I want to look up that because that's – hold on real quick. Uh, here we go. Let's see. To see the world in a grain of sand. Uh, to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower and hold infinity in the palm of your hand and to spend eternity in an hour. That's that the that's the the non dual state. Who is the, the poet that wrote that again? Uh, Blake. Blake. That was Blake. Blake. Yeah, and whoever put up the transcript or got that going, it's great. Makes taking notes a lot easier for me. Um, yeah, but, thank you for whoever is helping uh, John manage his YouTube now because you guys are doing a great job. But I, I that that poem is kind of pointing is well, I could say the non dual state, but really pointing to the outer and inner aspect yeah, of this the, the scaling up and the scaling down at the same yes. time being able to see everything within the smallest thing and see the smallest thing within everything else um yeah that deep interpenetration mm-hmm. as he called as he called it there's an expansion of vision there's also uh penetration into finite details you, you're gaining insight a sense of profundity and meaning to what's happening everything is imbued with meaning mm-hmm. and epiphany yeah and so there's this beauty, there's this truth, there's this aliveness to everything. Alive, I like that word, the, yeah. the alive, because that definitely, you know, from my experiences, it feels alive. That's the mm-hmm. only way you can really explain the feeling, like the world feels alive. You feel the aliveness of the world. 
like yeah. when all the little critters and plants and within the interconnectedness are, yeah. of it all so you get this sense of underlying oneness and this is what helps unify unify mm-hmm. uh, us as people and with our environments and it helps us understand the integrates us yeah it integrates yeah. us yeah. And so this helps lead to a more peaceful level of coexistence, mm-hmm. a higher level of yeah. coexistence. Yeah. And it's the human being's most optimally tuned state of being. Yeah. And then he mentions the, you know, the, the, what people, um, what people, you know, I guess the people being interviewed, but what, what people are saying about the sense of self it, and he brings up the word peace, but not necessarily like peace and joy, not necessarily like we think of peace and joy, but um, and it's in the peace like that inner understands harmony inner is the harmony is the yeah, inter- understands yes. the interconnectedness that yeah. you feel in concert with everything and that deep peace comes from a deep level of immediate understanding too because everything is true before you nothing's hiding behind filters of perception everything's just super apparent mm-hmm. and so you feel the enhanced connectedness the inner harmony the being in concert with the joy and, and what is joy? joy joy is good Joy That's is what I is haven't good. written as like joy. Dot, joy dot, dot. is what is, is good. good. Yeah, it's not just like pleasure or fun no, at all. But it's, it is it's what actually is good. when you come into contact with something that is truly healing. Mm-hmm. That is just it feels true, it feels good, and it is beautiful. And so joy is like, you know, see, seeing your baby for the first time, mm-hmm. or. Yeah. Your breath being taken away by something beautiful, mm-hmm. and you know, in a sunset. Well, or a we get we get choked up with you know people like rescuing cute kittens and puppies and doing kind things for people in need and yeah. stuff. You it's know, the end it of is Shawshank good. Redemption. We feel that when Red's yeah, talking about right. hope. Yeah, you know. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> and we lose the so we have the ego death moment, which is like the death of that. Uh, what do you say? Eccentric autobiographical. Yeah, that sense autograph- that we yeah, have. that ongoing inner monologue. That's telling you your life sense of self that we have what we call the ego not ego as in i think i'm so much bigger better ego but actually just the ego that everyone has like Mm -hmm. the false sense of self we think we are the barrier between things but we have a personality you're not you are not your personality you actually act through the personality so who is you who are you that's the great the great question and that's the invitation of self of self-inquiry and meditation is to look in who is it that has the sense of self if the sense of self is all these kinds of descriptions and features that we can come up with and stories and our experience our conditioning how we you know how we feel and how we think well who is it that is feeling who is it that is thinking because there's an awareness that sees all thoughts feelings sensations as they come in mm. and that is completely open and spacious yeah. and it's peaceful and so you connect with that, and you connect with a sense of interconnectedness with the world, and it's the mo- it's more apparent. Everything is super salient. It feels more real than regular existence. And there's it's just a, like this feels realer mm-hmm. than a dream. And there's a a remembering the yeah. sati end of and remembering, remember. and yeah. it's, like, it's like oh, this is waking oh, up. So you yeah. wake up from a dream to normal level of consciousness, and then you wake up from normal level of consciousness into mm-hmm. true, into the true actuality of. I don't know of the cosmos of existence of what we actually truly are, which is so endless. Verveki says here so um, about so. uh, Let's see, remembering the being mode. They remember. uh, They say I remember 
my true self. I remember who I really yeah, am. Who I really am. So there's a profound connection inward to the core machinery of the self that is at one with a profound sense of connection to the underlying patterns that govern um, and and makes into, uh, intelligent. In, Make intelligible. In, in, thank you. <laughs> yeah, the underlying um, patterns of reality. Yes. Yeah. The, um, and, you know, these are things that people reliably report. Not like they're mm -hmm. all getting together and telling each other. Of, no, this, this is, is yeah. This is the this is the feeling. Oh this yeah, this is the thing you see it in all the world religions, all the ancient mm. wisdoms traditions, uh, people that have experienced higher states of consciousness, near death experiences, um, you know, positive psychedelic trips, all come back talking about this shared sense of identity with mm -hmm. everything and everyone, the sense of oneness, the sense of inner joy the sense of truth, the sense of waking up for the first time. And like, I feel like I'm totally awake for the mm -hmm. first time in my life. Like yeah. that, that the brain is on a hundred percent. Your spirit feels interconnected with everything around it. And you understand in a deeper level why and how everything actually is in an ineffable way and in an yeah. indes indescribable way. Yeah. And that's the relationship change that they feel the, mm -hmm. the relationship with not just with themselves but with the world it, it, it actually both yourself so this, and your world yes um yes. and so this sati this remembering of what we truly are this waking up this is this is our actual i this is yeah. where I ca how i came up with the idea for the name of mm. this podcast for us to share in this ongoing awakening into what we truly are and will never be done there's no cap to enlightenment so we're on this ever-growing blossoming journey together but yeah i think so that catches us up so far um, you guys ready to dive back in just real quick um, what do you got uh it's it's, it's hard to read these off if you guys have thoughts or questions college. feel free to chime in and we'll get we'll get to you guys um if um, not during this episode next episode people feeling that they're participating in their reality that they're connected to this they start to feel like they're sharing identity to it Yes. And, um, and this, your, or in your way of thinking about this is when we talked about okay, Aristotle's no, but so the the shared the sharing identity with this experience too, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, and yeah, and the ineffable, like you know, like how do you ineffable. how do you describe you this? You can't put it into words. It's not like oh yeah, I was told this and I can write them down into verses. It's <laughs> like I, I, yeah. I, struggling to it's even beyond words. Yeah, but it's what words come from. You know, it's what it's like the source of all creation, becoming one with that and sensing that deeply. Well, you remember in a way that's like, oh my gosh, I remember like in a way that you're remembering from before you were born, almost. Yeah. It's like that. Remember Nelson's Ledges quarries? Yeah. And, and we're sitting on the <laughs> beach, and we had like a 15, 20 minute long conversation of, you know, yeah, I know, like really, I know. Oh yeah, you know, I, I know. <laughs> and, and and sure enough, we knew. Like, it was like, yeah, and, you know, look around. Like, there was a couple of e epic <laughs> realizations that happened while we were wa walking, I think, that led up to that moment where we're just mm -hmm. kneeling there on, on the I'd, on the sand. Yeah, and I was burying was myself just, yeah. up to my eyeballs to catch the whole sky. It was a absolutely oh. what John will say later on in this episode. Oh, man. It's yeah. like that flow state, that cascading, that cascade of insights. Yeah. Insights and epiphanies that pile upon epiphanies. How beautiful that there's this depthless wisdom to be found and it's like inherent in everything and everyone around us and it's accessible by anybody through uh, psychotechnologies, through practices such as meditation. Yeah, you know, you don't necessarily have to do it 
contemplation, you know, like dance, chemically casting. or meditationally or any. Of the, there's so many ways to mm-hmm. engender this state, this higher state of being, and you know that's what you like a good re- a good religion this, yes. should do is to provide you with the yes. circumstances. Ultimately, to, we need to practice this together. You can only do yeah. so much on your own, yeah. and it, it needs to ripple out and become yeah. an, an interconnected part of human culture and our societies yeah and we need to like it's almost like we're at the we have to, we're rebuilding our our shaman base if you will mm-hmm. you know because like we really got away from sure yeah the, we killed off know, old, all and, the old yeah shamans. and not just shamans but also like traditions that would get us into these states and, and behaviors mm-hmm. and and sure um and now we're rebuilding but we need responsible elders so, you know, in my mind, the John Bravakis and, uh, you know, all the people talking about these things and, you know, that are at the forefront of like psychedelics research and all this other stuff, they, they're kind of like the first generation of the old masters the, that we have to rebuild, you know, and then, yes, yes. then we're eventually, we're going to have to pick up the torch and keep it going because if we, if we want it in our societies, we have to do it ourselves and we have to do it in a way that actually works and replicates itself. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. a good society replicates itself yeah, reliably. We, we need to, a good tradition replicates itself reliably. We don't need to, but it would be I think, advantageous. I, I, I don't I know. I think it might be a it need. It would benefit the experience. I, 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 think it, I think it's a need at this point. We need the good. We need, we need, oh, yeah. We if, if you care wise. about the long-term survival of, <laughs> of humanity and the best aspects of our species and the furthering of, of a peaceful symbiotic coexistence mm-hmm. with one another and life throughout the universe, then... Certainly, this this would be important. Yep, so I think yeah. that, that's about all uh, for this section. Cool. Let's jump back in, guys. So we need a descriptive theory that can account for all of these features, the features of how the world is experienced, how the self is experienced, and the relation. Now, what I've been showing you already, of course, is deep continuity with the flow experience. I'm not claiming it's a flow experience. It's more than that. But I'm showing you that there's continuity, just like I showed you that there's continuity between the flow experience and the insight experience. And that's why when people are having these higher states of consciousness, they are also uh, proposing a, a, a very profound insight. And notice how often when you have an insight, it's also ineffable to you. You don't know how the insight arose or what comes, how it came to be. You're just like, ah, I just see it. Now, some other important things we should know about uh, these states. These states are often preceded by disruptive strategies. Disruptive strategies. These are strategies that are designed to disrupt your normal cognitive functioning and to alter your state of consciousness. So they can range from very long-term strategies to very short-term strategies. Long-term strategies can be the ones we've already described, like Siddhartha. Siddhartha was engaged for six years in these practices, these mindfulness practices of meditation and contemplation, and they bring about right, a, a, a very long-term, incremental, but nevertheless also profound disruption in your normal state of consciousness and cognition. People also can pr- pursue very short-term disruptive strategies. These include things like fasting, uh, sexual and sleep uh, deprivation. 
the, if you remember, we talked about how shamans will make use of these strategies in order to induce the shamanic state. There are, uh, they will expose themselves to uh, drumming, chanting. All of these things disrupt your normal level of cognition. And of course, when we talked about this as well, people will make use of psychedelics precisely because of the way they are so deeply disruptive of your normal cognition and your normal state of consciousness. So, what we know is that combinations, well, sorry, that's a little too strong. What we have good, some initial good evidence is that combinations of these strategies can be very good. There was a recent experiment coming out of the Griffiths Lab in 2018 in which uh, people who were practicing uh, mindfulness and then took psychedelics tended to have a more enhanced experience than people who were just taking the psychedelics, for example. So um, you can combine the strategies together. They can be mutually supportive. Now, what's important for this, as we'll come back and take a look at more carefully in a few minutes, is disruptive strategies are also central to setting up insight. And that should make sense to you, given what we've talked about. You have to do a lot of breaking a frame before you can open up the possibility of making an entirely new new frame. There was a recent uh, experiment run by Yadin et al. in 2017. Um, they had, uh, they had uh, 701 participants. 69% um, of them uh, reported this, what I called ontonormativity, this sense of the enhanced realness of their higher states of consciousness. And this was actually predictive of significant improvement across many dimensions of their life, right? There was significant improvement in family life, health, sense of purpose, spirituality, and, re and a release from the anxiety and fear of death. So the claim that these states do guide transformation has received um, empirical backing. Now, Yaden also brings out something important in that study that you don't see very well articulated in Newberg and in Taylor. And this is one of the disruptive strategies that, are, are, that people are often using, and it bleeds into the phenomenology. By that, I mean the experiential feel and structure of these experiences. Right? And this is the notion of decentering. So when people describe these experiences, they shift from right, a very sort of first-person orientation, an egocentric, to an allocentric. So they are not so egocentric. This is why this is called decentering. They're speaking more from like a third-person perspective and right, allocentric. So let me just give you a quick uh, understanding of the difference between these terms. I can describe my motion egocentrically, right? things that are in front of me, behind me, to the right of me, to the left of me, right? And that, of course, varies by how I'm oriented because it is relative to me. But I can also describe my position allocentrically. I can say where I am relative to the North Pole, for example, right? So the first is a first-person egocentric way of moving through the world. The second is an allocentric third person. Now extend that out. People are much less egocentrically oriented when they're describing the experience of their state than they are normally. They're much more allocentrically oriented. And that makes sense given how intensified the experience of reality is to them. It's like the salience 
of reality is finally capable of eclipsing the narcissistic glow of our own ego. And for a moment, at least, or for several moments, we get release, right? And this is a, an important idea. Nirvana means to blow out, to extinguish, or the Vedanta term moksha is release. We get a release from, right, the imprisonment, the self-idealization by the supersalience, and therefore the bullshitting of our own egocentric perspective. I mean, do you not sometimes wish to be free from the prison cell of the super salience of your own ego? So, as I've been suggesting to you, these higher states of consciousness have a lot of features of insight. I've already talked about the insight. Remember, we did the nine-dot problem, for example. Those aha moments. Because you get, in that moment of insight, you get a flash of insight. You get sort of super salience. Things are making sense to you. You get insight. It's almost visual into an underlying pattern, a unity, a oneness that wasn't there before. Your sense of what's relevant and important has been altered. And this ability to radically make sense, to find coherence, an underlying intelligible uh, integrative pattern, this we now know from current work is directly predictive of the experience of meaning in life. So Samantha Heinzelman, whose work uh, I, I recommend to you, I also got to meet Samantha uh, in person um, and got to talk to her about this. But what she has is good experimental evidence of the following. If you give people a bunch of scenes that make sense to them, that they can sort of determine an underlying pattern to, and then ask them how meaningful their lives are, they will rate their lives as more meaningful. The act, do you understand? The act of making sense, of finding coherence, actually makes people experience their lives as more meaningful. They're not being shown profound pictures of, or deeply dramatic or narrative scenes or emotionally... They're just showing some, some very basic pictures. But the act of making sense, of finding coherence, elevates the sense of how meaningful their lives are. So, start to put this together. If you were to have an insight that would give you an even more you know, sudden increase in your sense of meaning in life. And what if it's in flow? Well, it's going to be even more enhanced sense of meaning in life, and we already know that. The more often you have flow experiences, the more meaningful you find your life. And now what if it's beyond that? What if it's a higher state of consciousness that brings you this radical sense of deep intelligibility, not only of the world, but of yourself in both directions? at the same time. Well, that, was going, that is going to give you a profound sense of increased meaning in life. Now, if you get, try to put this together, if you get enhanced meaning in life coupled to an enhanced sense of understanding and that actually does guide you in improving your life, that is going to build a tremendous amount of confidence in you that you have found a path 
towards self-transcendence and wisdom. We can start to understand some of the Buddha's confidence. Now, what do we know about these flashes of insight? Well, Tobolinsky and Reber in 2010, this is a different Reber, not the implicit learning Reber, right? Talk about how insight is a fluency spike. Uh, I, I, although it's related to flow, it's not the same thing. Fluency is uh, a, gen it's a general property of all of your cognitive processing. So, how can we understand it? Well, initially people thought that fluency was a, a, a sense of how easy it was to process things. So the basic idea is, if I make it easier for you to process information, you will rate that information as better, more trustworthy, more believable, regardless of the actual semantic content. So for example, it, compare this right, to this, the contrast isn't as great. And if I were to get you to read some text in black and the exact same text in the orange, you will rate what you read in the black as better, you'll have more confidence in it, more likely to be true. The semantic content is exactly equal. It's because it's easier for you to process the black and white contrast than the orange on white contrast. Now it turns out it's not quite um, ease of processing just because simply repeating a stimulus doesn't trigger this sense of fluency. It's more like how accessible information is, how applicable it is. I would argue that it's how well your system is zeroing in on right, the relevant information. How much has the information be formatted for you so that you can uh, zero in on relevant information. A way of thinking about this to help make sense of it is our discussion of psychotechnologies. Alphabetic literacy made your cognitive processing more fluent and that improved your ability, your, pow your cognitive power, and by improving your cognitive power that gives you an enhanced sense of how real and important the information you're processing is. So the idea here is when you are fluent, you are processing information very efficiently. When you have, according to Tobolinsky and Reber, when you have an insight experience, what you're getting is a sudden spike in fluency. You're getting a, a significant increase in how fluently you're processing, and therefore you start to judge the information that you're processing therein as likely being more real. Now, is this, uh, is this an absolute perfect rule? No. But the fact that it's domain general, the fact that it seems to be part of our evolutionary heritage, and there's also some independent logical argumentation indicating that this fluency heuristic that your brain uses is actually a very good strategy. It's very generally the case, not perfectly, not certainty, but very generally the case that in real-world situations, if you are processing them very fluently, you are picking up on the real patterns. So insight is zeroing in. And then we talked about flow as an insight cascade, which is even more zeroing in. And 
It's, in, it's coupled to implicit learning in which you're picking, remember, you're picking up on bigger patterns that you're not consciously aware of. You can't put them into declarative utterances. Do you see, see what's happening here? So in the higher states of, as you start to move towards the higher states of consciousness, like flow, you're getting this enhanced fluency. So your brain is working very optimally and the implicit uh, learning is picking up on very complex patterns and you're tending to zero in on the causal ones rather than the correlational ones. I'm using all of this machinery we've already discussed. Because, as I've mentioned, in the flow state, you're starting to get a lot of the features of the mystical experiences and ultimately those mystical experiences that can be transformative by enhancing meaning in life and your sense of connectedness to realness. You get the at-one-ment in the flow state, the radical loss of self-consciousness, you're not egocentric, You've, although you know there's tremendous energy, it feels effortless to you, it's graceful, there's a super salience, it's intrinsically rewarding, it's like evolutionarily marked in, it's domain general and universal. All this stuff we've talked about, this is all being triggered in the higher states of consciousness. We back. Awesomeness. Yes. Onto normativity. A little bit before that. Here we are. Continuity with flow and insight experiences. Okay, so we have this self, these self transcendent states where we have this sense of sharing, a deeper sense of identity with the world and a deeper insight into oneself. It's ineffable and it's often preceded by disruptive strategies that disrupt our normal cognitive function, uh, altered states of consciousness, uh, long-term strategy, strategies for this, such as mindfulness, meditative, contemplative practices. Um, they're shorter, somewhat shorter. Uh, fasting, drumming, chanting, uh, the use of psychedelics, plant medicines, and combinations of strategies such as prayer, and fasting, mm -hmm. such as psychedelics and prayer or meditation, mm -hmm. work very, very well. They are actually mutually supporting one another. And so we have, and we have studies that actually now yeah. su support this. Yeah, that would be Aiden. Um, in 2007, there were 701 participants. Uh, so 69% of 701 participants uh, recorded this um, enhanced sense of realness in their higher stage of consciousness and that this was actually predicted. And so having these experiences was predictive of, uh, what was his exact wording here, because I don't want to muss this up, uh, um, improvement across many dimensions of their life, whether, mm -hmm. you know, their working life, their personal life, mm -hmm. um, their, you know, health, they're coming to terms of death. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. The so high, greatly decreased sense of <clears throat> fear of death. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this would actually be an interesting study to check out. Uh, let's see. If yeah, I, can... th I think that was maybe Yang. It, that, um, I've, regardless, mm -hmm. so we're getting some imperial backing for that combination of practices there. Um, but anyway, so we're looking at decentering techniques, which helps shift the ego, the egocentric to allocentric. Uh, which is when that sense of reality eclipses 
So in the higher state of consciousness, the sense of reality actually eclipses, becomes the forefront of our sense of reality and our e ego, ongoing inner monologue side of ourselves gets pushed to the background. And so we, instead of referring to oneself with that sense of I, it's more from like a third person perspective, yeah. like so looking down on the map. Yeah, like so the like the the egocentric aspect would be like I'm s s the camera is in front of me. Chris is to the right of me. Um the ceiling is above me. And the allocentric self would be me and Chris are placed in the well, what is it? I guess it's uh southeastern corner of the sunroom. Right. So it's in relationship to the world in the sunroom where we're placed opposed to I'm or the cameras in front of me, mm -hmm. you're beside me. Mm -hmm. So we are in this corner of this room. <laughs> yes. So the allocentric would be like looking on a map like the you are here on the map opposed to. And this actually feels really good. There's yeah. like they call it. There's like a word for this and like moksha the sense of release sati remembering awakening the uh, sense of reality is eclipsing that as Verveke says the narcissistic glow of one's own in inner ego so we gain increased clarity from bullshit because we're gaining super salience and this is a freedom from the super salience of our own ego see seeing into deeper into our sense of self and life so we're finding more coherence and meaning as a result that deep sense of interconnectedness helps us make sense, find coherence, find life to be more meaningful. And in the higher states of consciousness, beyond just the flow states, there's this radical sense of deep intelligibility, both of the world and of oneself at once. So this is a profound shift in people's lives that helps. And the sense of competence that you see in characters mm -hmm. like Christ or Buddha so I got a nice, a nice quote. Actually, gives us an idea into how it, that what what it gives us as it guides us, because you're being guided by this interrelation, mm -hmm. this depersonalized sense of integration with everything. It feels more like an ongoing flow with life as life. So there's a quote that I made sure to timestamp. It's like the salience of reality is finally capable of eclipsing the narcissistic glow of our own ego. There it and is. And for a moment, at least, or for several moments, we get a release. Yeah, moksha. And uh, the idea of nirvana. Um, moksha. And this is an important idea, nirvana. So that's... Oh, that's what the band was talking about when they named themselves that. Well, for a really depressed band, they picked a very <laughs> good feeling, uh, good feeling concept for a name. Yeah, I think they just like the sound of it. So to blow it's a out good interview with Kurt, where he's asked about it, and it was I don't think it was particularly like super deep, but it was at the same time there was a something there in having mm -hmm. that kind of name mm -hmm. with the honesty and you know the edge of that music. So what was that uh, term, moksha, moksha or moksha? Yeah, um, the blowing out to extinguish. Mm. Um, mm, yes, extinguishing of the ego mm. and the the lightness and the brightness of the world. It's interesting that he from used that perspective. He used the term blowing out, 
like mm. blowing out. Yeah, just and it is very much like a letting go. It's an ungrasping, as you, <laughs> to gain a greater grip on reality, you let go, because it's mm -hmm. the sense of self hanging on that is basically using up all that extra processing in the mind, creating that sense of ego and this idea of this thing that's trying to keep alive. And you free up that process and suddenly you're processing more efficiently. So you get these fluency spikes. Insight is like a fluency spike. Improved intelligibility. When things stand out more bold, more salient to us, more apparent to us in our environments, then that helps us that helps us process more efficiently, thus improving our cognitive power. So we get an enhanced sense of realness. So these higher states are providing us more real, reliable insight into the actual matter of reality before us it, it's zeroing in it's a cascade a flow-like cascade of insights of picking up patterns so this is increasing intelligibility thus we're getting that implicit learning that that ineffable unspeakable pattern recognition that happens within us mm -hmm. that we can learn even though we can't put it into words very easily uh, but this helps us pick up more on the causal versus cas casual. I'm sorry, the the causal versus correlative. Cor correlative. Thank you. Or correlational. Correlational. I think it's probably correlative. I don't know. Words, man. So, yeah. So these are the mystical transformative experiences spoken up, spoken of for ages by wise old dudes in mountains. And in beautiful temples, and wandering the desert, and sometimes even behind the counter at a gas station. You never know. Buddhas are even at the gas pump sometimes. Hmm. So I think that catches us up. Anything yeah, else you want to let me just uh, mark on there? Uh, so Samantha Heinzelman. Um, which he remains, recommends the work. Uh, let's see. Tinson. No, I, I think he pretty much covered it. Okay. Yeah. Rock yeah, and roll. I think, you know, right, that's Belinsky and Reber and fluency. Ah, uh, yes. That's yeah. Sense of oh, fluency. Actually, what fluency so like, actually yeah, means. It's yeah. defining of something more yeah, intelligible. Yeah, thank quick. you for bringing that back so that's what Verveke just did there though with all these terms that he's taught us now he just taught us he was able to put together a very deep profound concept what is actually happening cognitively in the brain so it's a general property of all your cognitive processing yes is um yeah this is got to be the optimal human state it makes yeah. perfect sense you're in the state you feel the sense of oneness this interrelation you're picking up on patterns better this is access to deeper wisdom understanding ability to conform with reality and helped help positively impact yeah so it's a it's a an efficiency of processing yes. it, it's a little bit more than that but we can think of it basically as that super efficient oh yeah the brain is it, buzzing yeah it's like everything is on and it's effortless too and that's what's beautiful about it it's effortless. evolutionarily important too because the more fluent you are with sifting out the bullshit from what is real uh the the better off you can you know eat mm -hmm. and live and procreate mm -hmm. it's just like when you so. tune an instrument and you tune it such that it's now 
harmonized perfectly, then it's got the perfect amount of vibration and our vital organs, our nervous system, everything is running optimally in this flow state. It works for everyone from pro athletes and Olympic athletes to jazz musicians mm -hmm. and actors and creators and all of us in our lives in moments where the flow state just comes upon us. Yeah. And it's it's a beautiful thing to experience. And it's it's so efficient. It's something we can processing that you don't even realize you're doing it. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's so efficient that it takes up no conscious effort. Yes, that's very efficient. It's cool that um, the that the biology is to, can be is built that way that it can tune into an optimal state mm -hmm. where it's doing the least amount of physiological and psychological damage to itself. In fact, it's in the optimal state for survival and for full enjoyment, like enjoy in the truest sense of feeling the sense of goodness that one gets when they're in a high state of congruence with reality. And, and how beautiful is it that the universe almost chimes like you solved a Zelda puzzle <laughs> when you do this? Because yeah. it's like, yes, welcome. <laughs> it's just what yours, you are. This is what we're supposed to do. Yeah. We're this co-creative cosmos. That's all we know. That's a yeah, what a beautiful, profound thing to get to experience. And we're doing all this with, you know, uh, the term I think he used was exapted machinery or something along those lines. You know, we're not really necessarily coming up with any new tech technologies or machineries, you know, psychotechnologies or psycho machine or. I don't know. Um, this is just how it feels for a, a yeah. self-aware psychotechnology creating level well, uh, light life form. It's almost like music, yeah. you know. The animals feel flow state, but they don't feel feel the. I don't know if they feel this level of self transcendence where it it uh, as it occurs. Well, to I don't think they're necessarily trying to figure out like exactly why they're feeling that. <laughs> no, way yeah, they're, they're how, not feeling how, a release yeah. of moksha uh, from their ego. They don't have a false sense of reality. Yeah, they just have reality and awareness, yeah. but they can certainly feel in a state of flow. And act in those flow states and those optimal states, and I'm I'm sure to a certain degree, certain highly intelligent animals have their own psychotechnologies that they're developing. There slowly. certainly is self awareness at the levels of degrees that you see, and and things like whales and that I want, sing I, I and wonder, have songs that travel from different families of whales all around the world. Like, I wonder how much awareness do you actually have? to have to efficiently use psychotechnology or a psychotechnology like you know like one psychotechnology being like um what well, seems then things it, like whales it, and dolphins to yeah. some degree and and the apes develop some kind of culture it's definitely not as developed as ours not even close yeah, but, but it's you know, there i wonder you know I'm, I'm doing the shaman thing and putting myself in the deer skin here and thinking about it but it's like you know how do hurting animals, you know, like, you know, it, hurting animals aren't just, you know, genetic mass that's telling yeah. them what to well, do. You can see it's it, also, like puppies and kittens learning yeah. from one another, even when it's a different, yeah. totally different species. I think play is probably like the most primal psychotechnology. Yeah, play allows to us to it's learn just, how to defend, our, defend ourselves and also mm -hmm. figure out our bodies yep. in a way that's fun that 
we develop as we learn to play. Yes. Yeah, that makes us better adapted to our environment. And, you know, maybe the parents teach them how to play, on. too, and, you know, yeah. like how not to be an annoying little shit. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, quit so talking how, on my how to be socially acceptable, yeah, you know. Yeah. There's only so much I'm going to put up with. I don't know. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a thought of postulation, you know, like bring your bring yourself down to the animal level and, and work your way back up. Right. What do you want to do? You want to take a break now? And yeah, then, let's uh, let's take a quick break. We'll jump back in. Get some water or your favorite beverage. Uh, go to the bathroom. Have your smoke. Yeah, I gotta go poke the fire. Got the wood stove going downstairs, so gotta take care of that. Forgot that we we're Straight halfway the It's just so much fun. It flies by. Yeah, it and does. hey, it's like nine o'clock, so we're well, like we're get, we're right at the, the halfway mark. Now, we're too. We're getting good at, you know, streamlining all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah look Every at episode us. gets better and better and better. That's, you know, every episode, just a little bit better. We're trying. We're trying. All as right. long as you guys end up watching this series, this John Verbeke guy. You really should. I'm happy. And then take it to your coffee shops and start discussing stuff like this. Do that. Got to take the That's culture back, man. Good call. We got it. Well, you know. We are the stewards. We get to guide this planet and one another, and we get to be that example we wish to see and all that good stuff. We can change the world from the inside out. That's the name of the game, just popularizing this invitation to self-inquiry, meditation, mindfulness practices, and uh, the other psychotechnologies that allow us to engage in wisdom and fellowship together. And you don't have to, like go out and create new ones we, you got we got a whole toolbox filled with very useful yes. tools and we've got to like pick up on this game of perfecting our collective sense making capacities Ooh. yeah that's that's that we can solve great problems together yeah it was getting yeah. we can build spaceships we can build pyramids we can make smartphones and these kinds of things when we put our minds together and we can actually use that collective wisdom that collective sense making for tackling the greatest challenges that face our species and to healing all of this stupid social breakdown that we see going on. I'm sure everybody's starting to get tired of it. It is tedious and yeah. plotting and irritating. It's old. It's, o- it's old. We are doom, so, doom, doom, doom. so easily pit against one another. Divide and uh, conquer methodology is alive and well. Well, you know. But we're, we're starting to pick up on it, you know. People are starting to see it left and right center. The reasonable people, the non-radical yes, fundamentalist extremist the, of the too far right or too far left. Or just the too far, man. You know, <laughs> like, it's, it's okay yeah, to too far, dude. It's okay to lean one or another way i don't know you could probably go too far center but we, we need each other yeah, yeah the, the left and the right need one another well your brain has two hemispheres for, Come for on liberty now. for liberalism for the ideal of freedom and collective self-governance to prevail yeah. rather than authoritarian dictatorship mm-hmm. yeah. ruled by overpowered authoritative systems that utilize force of violence and manipulation to control rather than that why not we self-educate and learn together and develop our sense-making capacities so that we can supersede so that we can create the new systems that make these this existing system obsolete and we build the scaffolding even as the traditional civilizations are starting to fail and crumble by bringing together the tried and the true Letting it be our glue and our foundation 
and finding what is going to work best for one and all together as we develop new systems 2.0 systems of what we got right now we got to get it together yeah the people got to are going to have to do this ourselves because the traditional structures of authority are failing they are corrupted well th- this is the it's t- clear this is the age of aquarius and aquarius is the egalitarian times yeah and it's not you know i i know the story is the sky story is a man bearing water which is traditionally the the, the female thing to do but so what we're going through isn't a gendered or sexed thing of e- egalitarian. It's it's everybody be coming into their own sense-making self and being able to make decisions for themselves and be yeah. able to participate fully. Yeah, it's all and of us that's tuning a, into that's a higher per, capacity It's a personal thing. More. It's not about like tearing down rich people or bringing up the poor. It's no personally getting people to be able to be full participants in their life, in the world, mm-hmm. by making reasoning and sense making you know it's like it's no wonder like the the independent information network has arised the way it has you know like your your podcasters and your small time like your sub stackers and your mm-hmm. like all, you know all variations of this are becoming such yeah. a big thing we're realizing we have to decentralize and bring you know spread the seeds yeah because you can't just bring people down that doesn't work you can't just bring no. people up because you, you need can't actual just bring ethically guided up. journalism yeah. once again that but is trying indi- as objectively as yeah, it can to just tell what happens doing it. rather than presenting yeah. a framing and it, it is it's well, just it's broken down more to individuals and small groups yeah, doing this from the ground up it's very grassroots so that's a reflection of what the we're re-weaving. striving for individually yeah. as well we're consuming these things you know, well, I think ultimately because we feel a deep need for this per- like personal individual responsibility thing, um, you know, gone are the days where we can just have somebody else do it, and we know it, we feel it. It's true. It's yeah, we've, to, we've it, got it's to a, live through something of a golden age, as we became so technologically efficient, mm-hmm. and then the greedy among us took control of that and the and the and lazy allowed themselves to be taken control of we, we could have been technologically advancing while maintaining the stability and symbiosis with planet and one another and uh well, we're doing well you know our, our government our governments um have certainly been infiltrated by uh, financial yeah. power centers corporate well and, 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 let, and let's just say like cultists um, that have an ideology that di- some that dark, didn't work the last hundred years. So why are we dark, doing it again on a global level? On, oh, no do, and I don't mean cultists in like hoodoo and all and, you know all this other stuff. I mean people who believe in a what they call an economic or governance system, but is more of like a theology that are then trying to apply it to the world. Like look at what yeah, the, do, look at what the UN and UNESCO super, is up to right super, now. They, they, they super egocentric at the same time that we've been go- having this mindfulness revolution for the last yeah. few decades here. So we're, we're just kind of having a lash back. It's the turbulence yeah. of the waves yeah. and it's the swinging of the pendulum and it's just happening faster and faster mm-hmm. and faster now as we can be easily fooled by our baser instincts and driven by fear and manipulate and manipulation of our emotions. Yeah, they get you. Uh, that with the that fear, will get man. us, and then people will recognize. Oh, like collectively, people start to rec- recognize the bullshit, 
Yes. And well, I was talking like Epstein with, didn't kill himself, yeah. kind of, you know. Well, I was talking just with figure you. it out together sometimes, and so that a lot of that's happening right now, faster and faster rates, yeah. even as more bombs are being thrown into the mix to try and throw more chaos. Well, it's hard to take over the coffee shop if you're an external force. So what we were talking about before the podcast was, you know, like, you know, people like if they're shakers and movers and they have the money to invest, buy property, open like coffee shops and bars where you're allowed to talk about philosophy, politics and religion. You just have a be polite about it. And start bringing that culture it. to your own coffee shop too. And yeah. Invite a bunch of friends. Start having like coffee shop parties. Yeah, and you just you talk know? about things that we're not More supposed to talk about in public anymore. It's yeah. like, go ahead and talk. Like, because we're not even supposed. Like, I, you know, when I talk, when I go to the bar and talk with people, I'm not good at the, the small talk. I go deep, and people are like, oh, too that's deep the for stuff me. That and we're supposed too, to be talking like, about. That's the best where's, stuff. Where's the adults <laughs> like, trying to engage on? and help yeah. run the world together? Because it's going to take all of us together now to sail this ship. Because we're globally interconnected, yeah. where all of our cultures are starting to mix, and they have indeed also been clashing, and we're all reeling from the impact of so much, mm. so many different ways of looking at the world. Yeah. But we're also finding these golden threads that run through all of the great wisdom schools. And why not bring that that ancient wisdom and those psychotechnologies to bear now yeah, and well. start to practice them together and see how they inform one another, pick up where each other leave off and compliment one another. I mean, just seeing things the same thing from different angles yeah. since there are so many paths well, to the more eyes top. Are, more eyes are better when looking for something. And yes. when you're looking for something that is, can't be defined that's ineffable. You need more and more eyes. So when you say, you know, then they go, ah, yes, I know. Yes. Um, and more of us, you know, let's get those those numbers from, what was it, uh, 30, 30 to 40% of people having these higher state, these yeah, higher states right. of consciousness. Let's, let's get those numbers up in every way we can. Bring this to ritualistic level. It's yeah, part I, of our holidays. I get start, it. Some people don't want to sit there yeah. and meditate. Some people aren't cool with taking chemical, like, you know, I don't or, know, plant, psychedelic medicines or, or plant medicines yeah. or things like that. Some people really Prefer don't like right practice yeah the, the long-term mindfulness practices we have which so are many also now just so so good to have throughout your life regardless yeah. of what else you're doing yeah and everybody is a little bit different but there are so many different methods in order to get into these states. oh for sure and i think it's it's best to try multiple things out and see what marry yeah. well together for you yeah, because that is literally what humanity and our cultures mm -hmm. are doing right now as well. And Buddhism and Christianity have long had a beautiful relationship mm -hmm. amongst amongst their mystics. Yeah, and that should be able to continue throughout the world. Yeah. So yeah, we're her right. here to help encourage that. We're going to yeah. take a quick break, guys. So go ahead, do what you got to do, and we'll be right back. And we're back. And we are back. What up? What up? What up? Howdy ho, everybody. So, uh, so yeah, we just uh, talked about that high-speed implicit learning cascade of insights that's going on in the mind during these higher states of consciousness that give us that sense of deep coherence and thus meaning in life. The capacity to pick up on patterns increasingly reliably improved efficiency, optimized status of the brain during these events. And it helps in all aspects of life. Insights both into the flow or sense of oneself as well as the outer world, 
Yes. Yes, indeed. So here we are going to dive back into it now. And uh, we froze John. This is a great <laughs> face. I think hilarious. everybody should see it. This is a master doing his work. This of a master. This is the face of a master right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in this moment. <laughs> All right, here we go. Feel the intensity. <laughs> Let's jump back into it here. Intrinsically rewarding. It's like evolutionarily marked in. It's domain general and universal. All this stuff we've talked about, this is all being triggered in the higher states of consciousness. Okay, so this leads to a hypothesis I want to present to you. Oh, here it is. So, uh, this hypothesis is a continuity hypothesis. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? We are doing this because we want a scientifically legitimate, scientifically plausible explanation of what's going on when somebody claims enlightenment, like Siddhartha Gautama. When somebody claims radical self-transcendence like Plato. Because we want something that gives a good explanation for what's actually happening and a good justification for why somebody should follow and be guided by these transformative experiences. Okay, so what's the continuity hypothesis? The continuity hypothesis is the idea, so this is a hypothesis I'm giving you, although I, 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 as I was doing research on this, um, Newberg, independently from me, uh, we haven't spoken, uh, has also come up with this, uh, a version of the continuity hypothesis. It's not as developed as the one I'm going to give you, but it's completely consonant with it. So the idea is fluency gets enhanced in insight, insight gets enhanced in flow, right? So you've seen all those arguments already, and then the idea is, as I'm trying to show you, flow experiences can be enhanced into mystical experiences, and then there are mystical experiences that can bring about a transformative experience. These are the higher states of consciousness in which people, right, are willing to transform. We'll come back to the problem of transformative experience. So the continuity hypothesis is basically the same machinery is being used, but it is being exapted. Remember exaptation? It is being progressively exapted into more and more powerful processing that can afford what I'm going to argue a rationally justifiable guidance into the kinds of transformation that we are seeking when we are seeking to cultivate wisdom and enhance meaning in life. When we are seeking to awaken from the meaning crisis, we are trying to invoke one of these awakening experiences. And remember, that's what Buddha means, the awakened one. So, Newberg argues that if you have a lot of these kinds of experiences, what he calls little enlightenment experiences, or regular insights, that this will eventually produce these kinds of experiences. And I, I so this is a, not only a continuity hypothesis, this is a priming hypothesis, and I support that as well. The more you are practicing mindfulness, which we know is predictive of insight and flow, we know that mindfulness practices are predictive of 
uh, mystical experiences. We know that they're connected to transformative experiences. The more you can prime this pump, the more you will be able to bring about this enhanced connectedness, this enhanced anagoge. All right, so this, I think, idea of the continuity hypothesis will help us to begin to explain what's going on in the higher states of consciousness and eventually use the very same machinery that we talk about in explaining it in, to justify it, to give a rational justification for it. All right, so we know, for example, that in flow, there has to be a relevant expertise. Right? Remember, we've talked about this. The flow state is when your skills, your expertise, right, can meet the demands of the situation. If you don't have the relevant skills, you can't get into the flow state. Right? So I can get into the flow state as a martial artist because I have cultivated the expertise. I can get into the flow state while lecturing because I've been doing it for 24 years. I have the relevant expertise. So what we might ask and what you should ask me right now, you say, well, John, like, what's flowing in these higher states of consciousness? What's, what's, what, what expertise are you using? Well, what I want to argue to you is it's a fundamental kind of expertise, one that's central to your everyday experience of making sense of the world on a day-to-day -day basis. So this ultimately goes back to work by uh, Marleau-Ponty, especially in the book, The Phenomenology of Perception. But the people who I'm going to most often refer to, the work of Herbert Dreyfus. Dreyfus is famous within cognitive science for bringing uh, the work of Marleau-Ponty and others into cognitive science, and also the work of Dreyfus and Taylor. This is uh, the Charles Taylor that we've already talked about with connection to the actual revolution in a book uh, called Retrieving Realism. So what process is being optimized here? Okay. So Dreyfus and others talk about right, what they call optimal grip. Now that's so, I mean they mean it metaphorically because they're talking about cognition, but that is such a wonderfully felicitous term because again, it harkens back to the conformity theory of cognition, a contact epistemology that, of course, Charles Taylor uh, introduced us to. Now, what do they mean by that? So part of this is the idea that when we're, let's talk about it first perceptually. When I'm trying to perceive an object, especially if I don't know what the object is initially, I don't remain static. Okay, I'm going to move around the object until I get to a place that gets into a trade-off relationship. Remember, we've talked about these trade-off relationships before. What trade-off relationship do I want? Okay, I want to get to a place where I can see as many details of the cup as possible. So that was sort of zooming in, right? Oh, wow. But if I zoom in too much, I lose on the other end. I don't get a, a sense of the gestalt. Remember that? I don't get a sense of the overall thing. So what I do is I move the cup around so that I get a place where I get the best optimization for my needs. It's, all, it's always relative to what I'm doing. I get a best optimization between the overall grasp of the cup, its gestalt, 
and a grasp of its details. So I'm trying to get a dynamic balance between. That's why when you draw faces, you draw them from the perspective of the optimal grip you have on them. You represent a face in such a way, right? You draw a face in such a way that you try to get as much of the whole and as much as the detail together. You don't draw a face by like drawing someone's eyes really in detail. And you don't draw a face by zooming out, right, too far. You try and get exactly that right balance. So a lot of perception, you're unaware of this because you learned how to do this when you're like a young child. But think about, for example, again, if you're learning a martial art. Okay? Just as an example. So when you're relearning how to perceive your opponent, part of what you're trying to do is try to get an optimal grip on your opponent. So, right, in Tai Chi, for example, we talk about tiger eyes. We, we, you don't want to hard focus on the person's face. One of the mistakes that many people make going into a confrontation is they hard focus on face or they hard focus on weapon. We know this from psychological research, by the way. You get people who have been held up, you know what they can give you an accurate description of? The gun, not the person who was holding them up because they hard focus, right? They lose that soft vigilance. So what you want to do is you want to get the right, and it takes practice, right? You want to flow over the person. You don't want to be sort of flowing in a blurry fashion. You want to get this sense where you've got a sense of their whole body, right? But you can zero in on details. And then you also are trying to get an optimal grip on your own body. So for example, you're going to take a stance, right? And the point about the stance, right, is to try and give you an optimal sense Right? Give you an overall sense of, so now I'm aware of my whole body, right? But I'm also aware of it in, in, in connection to the details of where, like where my fingers are, where my wrists are, what my joints are doing. And I'm taking a stance that I can ease, that's multi-apt. I can easily transform it into what I need to do. I get an optimal grip. Okay? You do this cognitively. Eleanor Roche pointed this out in terms of the categories you use. So you will describe things as a cat or a dog. That's how you'll usually talk about it. You usually won't go a level up and say, oh, that's a mammal. So this creature's walking by on the road, and somebody says, hey, look at the mammal. That would be weird, right? Now, they might go down to another level, like there's the cocker spaniel. But generally, they're doing that because they have some intimate familiarity. Most of us would say, hey, look at the dog. Rosh calls this the basic level. Why do we default to the basic level in the way we talk about? Why is this a table? Why is this a marker? Right? Why do we default to the basic level? Because it's how we get our cognitively optimal grip. You see. There's two things I want to trade off in when I'm categorizing things. Here's my category, right? I want as much similarity within the category as I can get, right? But I want as much difference between two categories. And those are in a trade off. Because as I go higher up, right, I get much more abstract and I lose the specific differences. When I go down here, Right? I'm getting too specific. I'm losing 
the broad generality. We've talked about this before. You're always trying to balance between getting, remember, the higher, the higher states of consciousness, as comprehensive and as detailed as you can. And those are always in a trade-off relationship. So you talk about dogs and cats because that's your way of getting an optimal cognitive grip on the world. Remember we did this? The cat. Remember we talked about how you're simultaneously going up to the gestalt and down to the detail. You're optimally gripping between the gestalt of the word and the features of the letter. And you're doing it right now. You've got a way of paying attention that allows you to read. And you had to practice that optimal gripping. You're going into a first date. What do you do? Well, you're trying to get a sense of the person. Now, uh, here's where the term optimal grip is a little infelicitous, uh, but so don't, don't read anything, um, misread any sexual misconduct into my use of the term. I'm using it in the technical sense. But you're trying to get an optimal grip on the other person. And it's very difficult. Notice how you're, you're toggling your attention and your interaction. And, and you know this because of the kinds of advice your friends give you. They'll say things, right? I, I happen to be straight, so they'll say to me, for example, you know, look into her eyes, but not too much. Smile, but not too much. Laugh, not too often. Ask questions, but not too many. And mix it up between these strategies, but not chaotically. And you're like sort of, ugh. And yet, here's the thing. You do it. It works, at least sometimes. You figure out, you find that sweet spot where you're getting the sense of the person, both as a whole and in detail. I'm giving you multiple examples. You're always engaged because you're always trading between these trade-offs. You're always optimally gripping. So you have to do this domain general. You have to do it in every domain. When you're swimming, going on a date, reading, right, looking at an object, you're trying to get an optimal grip. And you have practiced this skill so that you're extremely proficient. You, you do it without realizing it. Herbert Dreyfus is one of his favorite examples. You know how close to stand to somebody. How close should you stand to somebody in order to get an optimal grip on the interaction? There is no algorithm. It's like, always stand four inches. That's ridiculous. Always stand one foot. It depends on the context. It depends on the person. But you have that skill. Most of you are not socially awkward. So, here's what I'm proposing to you. What if you didn't, when you, what if you got into a flow state that wasn't, it isn't the flow state of doing a martial art. It isn't the flow state of playing music, like in jazz or something. What if what you were getting into a flow state about was your ability to optimally grip the world? What if I made it really challenging by altering your state of consciousness, disrupting your normal framing, and then opening up because, right, 
No, remember what's happening in this higher state. You're both opening up your attention and zeroing in to see the world in a grain of sand. What if you were all, what if you had this all optimal grip, but it wouldn't be on just one object. It would be a dynamical, flowing, optimal grip on the world and yourself. The most comprehensive attempt to make sense. Not intellectually, theoretically, but optimally gripping reality. This deep conformity. So what I'm proposing to you is that what's happening in a higher state of consciousness is that people are flowing in their capacity to cognitively, perceptually, and even with the very machinery of their self, get an optimal grip on both the world and themselves. And that's why this relation is experienced as so intensely powerful and so intensely revealing. Now, this would help to make Now. Now we are back. We are back. Good Please. stuff. So we just gave us several examples for the continuity hypothesis and the priming hypothesis. Yeah, and the continuity hypothesis would be like fluency enhancing insight, which enhances flow, which is enhanced into mystical experiences mm -hmm. which then enhance again into transformative, transformative. experiences yes and so the same machinery that we yeah. use for relevance realization in our environment mm -hmm. for survival is yeah. used to cultivate wisdom yeah newberg argues that regular insights produce like daily regular insights mm -hmm. or primers for this yeah, yeah every everything primes mm -hmm. yeah it's all it's all reciprocal yeah, and you know, it, it's it's kind of like you Insights practice practice fluency. a little little a day. Yeah, does you real well, and it makes you better and better. Yeah, better. flow enhances so mm -hmm. fl fluency enhances insight and in insight enhances flow. Flow enhances mystical experiences. Mystical insights enhance and help it trigger transformative experiences, and all of these also feed in upon themselves. So flow helps ins enhance fluency. You know, transformative experiences are imbued with deep insight. So, thus, mystical experiences. Mm -hmm. And again, more insight, fluency, flow. Y yeah, and so... I guess. An, and so he's given us a scientifically legitimate, plausible explanation of enlightenment and self-transformative uh, practices and experiences. And he, I guess he's doing this to... Like in his words, help us to begin to explain what's going on yes. in the higher states. Like, yeah. what is going on Good there. examples, and then also good justification yes. for why yes. we can should be guided by these self-transformative experiences and practices. So we get into that enhanced uh, fluency, and this is the same machinery that we're exacting from relevance mm. realization. We it, can prime this, so there's the priming hypothesis. Yeah. And so this rational justification for these experiences, again, is going to allow us to perfect them in our cultures. And that, now we get d 
deeper into this fundamental sense-making capacity of how we have obtained an optimal grip or relation mm -hmm. with our environments and ourselves in relation with those environments. And, and one thing with the flow state that uh, stood out to me is the flow state uh, requires an expertise. Yes. So, yes. like, if you're getting into the flow state within music, you have to be a fluent mm -hmm. music musician with expertise in that, or if you're a martial artist or public orator or you know there has to be an expertise so yes there has to, has to be prior <coughs> training involved yeah and that's then in practice as well because you know ten thousand mm -hmm. hours makes the expert expertise yes. so yes. and the more expertise you have the deeper mm -hmm. you can go into the flow state and it almost seems like you could you know use one expertise to help you cross over into another like i'm a musician and you notice that a lot they say the yeah. understanding of how i see martial music arts it helped feeds me. into how you play music and your capacity to understand music and yeah well on on my end like my capacity like i am an expert in music i have my ten thousand hours not bragging but that's where i sit and the way i see music and particularly when i'm in the flow state and the problems that i can solve within there can be transposed over into other ends of life, life you know sure. you know i build things as well so you know music and building are real tight uh particularly when you're in the flow state and you're getting things done and if you're working with another person and like you know it, it might be just you know shovelfuls of of cement or something like that but you get into a real good you know back and forth flow and by the time you know you're done everything's good it's fucking awesome no, excuse me freaking awesome um, but yeah, like, I, but I, I think the reason why the having an expertise thing stuck out to me is because it's something you really have to work at. It's true. That's true. Yeah. You know, or have, have, or have done at least at. several times. Yeah. And yeah. you can feel like small intimations of this. We've sure. talked about the example when you throw the crumpled up piece of paper into the trash, no look behind the back and it's yeah, just right. perfect. Right. Yeah. And you can achieve flow state even when you just learn two chords on the piano and you're playing them over and over and over again and you start singing along or something but yeah. it grows deeper and deeper and deeper the more expert you are the more trained you are the more long the more often you can induce the flow state the longer you can mm -hmm. be in it the deeper you can be in it mm -hmm. the more capable you're going to be within it all of that um, fundamental expertise is the the note i have here but yeah mm -hmm. you need a fundamental expertise yeah yeah. Um, and then the soft vigilance, not too rigid, not too loose, to be in that mm -hmm. optimal relation to maintain that. So he gives us a lot of examples of how we think and speak in language. We go to uh, basically the general basic level when we're talking about something like a cat or a dog. We say, oh, there's a cat, okay. there's a dog. Yeah. We don't go too specific, or I mean, I'm sorry, too abstract and say, oh, there's a mammal. We don't go too yeah, specific yeah, like, and say like what exact breed it is most of the time. With its color patches and all, and and all that describing stuff. Describing all the features yeah. of it or anything. We just... And this helps us maintain an optimal grip on mm -hmm. our environment so that we're able to account for many different things at once without taking in too much of the detail. You need to get a good picture yeah. of what's happening. And yeah, so it's, we have to have trade-offs. And yes. uh, a term you use is dynamic yeah. balance. There has yes. so dynamic and active balance. Yes, and then you, balance you see the sweet spot when you're on like mm -hmm. a first date and it's really clicking, and there's that you're getting a sense of the person and you're learning kind of how to dance and to flow with that person mm -hmm. and how they are. You know, what yeah. kind of spaces around them, how you can move with them. And then so it, an optimal understanding and level of interaction yeah. with another person. Or, yeah. And we also know how to how close to stand to yeah. somebody automatically. It's something that we learned when we were very young. 
Yeah, and then we do it with ourselves too. Like you were saying, you become aware of like you know, say when you take a stance in martial arts, you're gauging mm-hmm. up the person, becoming aware of you know, doing the the dynamic balance between seeing the whole, but also being able to focus on being ready for many different but potentialities. Then you can feel where your wrists are, what your yeah, position your is, your balance. Allows you to feel your whole body, like yeah. your whole body so, becomes your tool. So you're like embodying so your you're body. kind of like going back and forth as well you, between the yeah. you have awareness yourself of your legs, your arms, and some your, where your fingers are at. Yeah. yeah sorry, so you have a an awareness of so you're going back and forth between the being aware of the other person as well as being and aware yourself. of yourself There's too. That dynamical yeah and interchange that relationship mm-hmm. that balance that the mind is practicing being at. So that so right there we can see how mastery in one skill can easily map onto another in many ways. At least the capacity to enact skillfully mm-hmm. is mapping on. Yeah. So there's a level of awareness and and surrender to presence and a letting go and allowing one's expertise to flow through them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he brought up it's Eleanor Roche. Roche? And the ca- categories, like you were saying about dog. Categories. Yeah, categories. Yeah. That's actually how I spelled it, but yeah, categories. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the default that we use to obviously grasp things is dog not you know mammal because well you need to know dog oh dog and then if you need to go further which dog that dog (laughs) but you know it's it's dog ultimately it's it's just dog that's the default level so um so it so when you're doing this on a higher level in a higher state of consciousness this is the reason that it has an enhanced sense of realness because you're taking in more of the patterns at once your mind is in an optimal grip with reality and your sense of self at once, and there's this dynamical interchange, and you begin to feel a comprehensive oneness, a deep conformity with one's sense of self in relation with that reality, with reality itself, let's say, with the world. So yeah, the flow state of optimal grip with reality is what we're looking to perfect, and that's what also we're gaining in realizing and in, in cultivating these higher states of consciousness and the practices that help us employ them. So trading off, but so these, these trade-offs, they allow us to see similarities and differences and, in, in come to better understanding through these similarities and differences. Yeah. We're constantly like, breaking a, and rebuilding you, frames. And as you go higher up, mm-hmm. you get a much more abstract, loose, you know, um, you lose some differences and gain some similarities. And like, I guess the goal would be to change. It's seen all of that at once and change things as much as possible, get as many differences as possible. So then it, so then the similarities like, is what, like if you have things, if you change things all the time, you'll start to get a grasp at what stays the same. And I think he, at the end of this, he starts talking about that, but like, you use differences and similarities to come to a grasp in the sense of like do i don't know say you're having um problems with social gatherings right well then you'd go out to a bunch of different kinds of social gatherings and then figure out it's like well it wasn't just you know the obnoxious people drinking and it wasn't just that because that changed and that changed the one similar thing was this whatever it may be so 
if you can change it up and change it up and change it up and change it up, the things that are most real are the things that are going to be the same through each iteration. And the more iterations you do with differences, the and more by understanding solid and understanding becoming familiar of, with those, you know, those different modes of being mm-hmm. that you're inhabiting, that other people are inhabiting in these environments, yeah. you learn how to surf through those moments more reliably. Mm-hmm. You start to understand that, okay, there's like threads, common threads that are going through yeah. everything. And here's how I can interrelate with this experience. Yeah. And so, so yeah, it's all about sharpening, priming our reciprocal relation with reality. Yeah. And, and, what what we're doing when we're dancing do, with it yeah when yeah. we're doing this it's not it's not algorithmic it's not like it comes you know, from dancing with to dancing as and it's paradoxical yeah. there's a sense of the oneness a comprehensive sense of oneness mm-hmm. and interconnectedness there's also fine detail acuity that is constantly available and it's all seamless mm-hmm. it's like you're freed up because you're decentered from the egoic perspective and everything's just apparent automatically without needing to be uh, deeply comprehended in the moment it's just automatic now yeah it's, it's a beautiful state and so and uh the question yeah. he asked is what if we get into the flow state but doing it about optimally gripping the world so not mm-hmm. just musically or martial artsly but do it with the with the world, yes. so yeah, you're that's that's the goal yeah, of, of this whole thing is you're understand, understand getting into the flow state of understanding the world, yes, and and re- into relation yeah. with the world yes. as the world, yes. Yeah. So not just p- playing the notes and the music and you know getting that, but no, like playing the notes of the world and the universe and the understanding of it in that that sense. And yes. I, the, I think the goal is to expand out into the universe as well as dive all the way in within oneself to find out what is congruent what is the same through all of it and yeah he he uses the use the term cultivate from there deep conformity so it's like Mm -hmm. like to you know to to wrap around to conform in that sense not to conform in the sense of like you know everybody to do the same thing but to 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 form yourself around very deeply as comprehensively and detailed as we can balancing both yes Mm -hmm. And cognit- yes. cognitively and experientially as well. Yes. You know. um. Well, understanding how it's working in our cognition and our psychology is very helpful for us. I mean, it's going to be helpful for science and understanding how consciousness works. But well, it's certainly one, helpful for us as individuals once to we understand, understand how we tick. Yeah, so scientifically, once we understand it scientifically, we'll be able to start to create better, more accurate psychotechnologies and fine-tune the ones that we have mm-hmm. already have and have already developed throughout the development yeah. of our species. So yeah. now this is like taking the next step. Yeah, now the first step is legitimizing mm-hmm. and actually helping the scientific community mm-hmm. admit and see, yeah. okay, higher experience, higher yeah. levels of consciousness. It's not, not just hocus real, pocus. It's a real thing. And it's an important. For thousands of years, so, it's very important. It's yeah, central to how we operate as human yes. beings and in our wider tribes and mm-hmm. cultures and yeah. as a as a globe now. So this is uh this is the good stuff. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, dynamic uh, flowing with the world. Name of the game. So now we're at uh, the the last the last hurrah. Radio. All right, guys, we're jumping back in. Now this would help to make sense of things because again, if there's a deep continuity between the higher states of consciousness and things like flow and insight, that would help to explain why the disruptive strategies are so important for getting into the higher states of consciousness because 
Disruptive strategies are central, as I mentioned, to insight. You have to bake, break up the bad framing. Now you can do that by using mindfulness and breaking frame. You also are naturally disposed to do this. Your mind wanders. Your mind distracts you from your task. And many of us find this annoying. It's like, ah, why can't I keep my mind on something? But why is mind wandering so hardwired into us? And one of my uh, former students and now colleague and good friend, Zach Irving, is becoming one of the world experts on mind wandering. I would point you to his work if you want to go into it in depth. What I would want to say for here, and I think Zach would agree with me on this, is that one of the things that mind wandering does is it enhances your capacity for insight. Because by distracting you from how you've framed a situation, it can help you return and break up that fixated frame. And there's work by Siegel and others showing that moderate amounts of distraction actually enhance your cognitive flexibility. The reason why we mind wander, amongst other reasons, I'm not saying it's the sole reason, but one of the things it does is it helps disrupt our framing so that we can break frame and make a new frame. That's often why, and, and, and this is why people have built a whole mythology around incubation. Go and sleep on it, or go for a walk, or take a shower. Basically what you're doing is a disruptive strategy of distraction. Right? As I mentioned, you can deliberately, more deliberately engage in a disruptive strategy through mindfulness practices. We know experimentally that if you give a person problem and you introduce entropy, noise into the problem, a moderate amount, that can help them uh, have an insight. And we know, for example, that when your brain is engaging in insight, there's good reason to believe, as I've mentioned, that there's a significant shift. We talked about this between the left and the right hemisphere. That's an internal disruptive strategy. So your brain has all these strategies, and you can learn some psychotechnologies that enhance all this powerful disruption. So the disruptive machinery that's integral to insight can be exacted and enhanced to bring about a higher state of consciousness. So what, the, what these, all of these disruptive strategies do with insight is what's called de-automatization. So you remember with the nine-dot problem, you automatically, and remember this because we're going to need this when we talk about other things like Stoicism, you automatically, unconsciously, saw it as a square. You framed it uh, in terms of the square. You automatically, unconsciously, right, formulated it as a connect the dot the problem. And then that automatic framing blocks you from solving it. And in order to get out of that, you have to de-automatize your cognition. Now, we talked about this when we talked about attentional scaling and mindfulness, just reminding you that What's happening in these disruptive strategies is very significant de-automatization. Something else is going on with these disruptive strategies. What these disruptive strategies do is they increase the variation in your processing. Often by introducing a lot of noise, right, a lot of entropy into your processing, you're increasing the variation 
in what you're paying attention to, what processes you're activating in your brain. You're just increasing the variation. Now, why is increasing variation good? Increasing variation is good because what, when, when I increase the variation, what I can do is get more awareness right, of what's invariant. As I, the more I vary what I'm doing, the more I become aware of what's not changing. Right? So as I move around this object, right, lots of stuff is varying, but its shape is remaining constant to me throughout the variation, and that's why I think of the shape as more real, because it's invariant through all this variation. So when I increase the variance, so I pick up, I'm more able to pick up on what's invariant. Now the thing we need to know is that there are two kinds of invariance, two kinds of things that are not changing in your attempts to get a grip on the world. There's good, in, right? There's good invariance and bad invariance. Okay. What's good invariance? By opening up the variation, I pick up on bigger patterns that aren't changing that are real patterns in the world. This is what goes on in deep learning networks, right? You pick up on much more complex patterns of invariance. You get more in contact with what's really going on. Again, think about what you do when you want to make sure what something is. You increase the variation. Not only am I looking at it, I'm looking at it, I'm touching it. I increase the variation to find out what's invariant because if I have increased variation, and I find out what's invariant in it, that often tells me what's more real. That's good, right? So, that can get me real patterns. But there's also bad invariance. Bad invariance, right, is like what's happening in when you're trying to solve the nine-dot problem. You keep trying to solve it, and you keep failing to solve it because there's something you need to change that you're not changing. Bad invariants are ways in which you're formulating your problems, framing your experience, that's actually blocking you from solving your problem. So Kaplan and Simon in 1990 talked about a heuristic, a strategy we use called the notice invariance heuristic. This is the idea. Across all of your different problem formulations that are failing, you keep doing this, and you keep doing, and I can't get it. I can't get it. I can't get it. When you increase the variation, you can then apply the notice invariance heuristic. What am I not changing in all of these failures? What am I not changing in all of my failed framings? Because very often, what you're not changing is precisely what you need to change. And so the notice invariance heuristic can help you break bad framing that has been causing your failure. Now this, of course, requires humility on your part. This is why the deep connection between wisdom and humility, I would, I would suggest. Paying attention, remembering your failures, such that you can apply this, would be very helpful. Now. 
Let's talk about, this is one problem they were talking about, Kaplan and Simon. But what if, right, what if I don't just have one error here, but I have a whole system of errors. So very often, when you look at cognitive development, right, you take the two-year-old, sorry, four-year-old, because they can count, you count out the five candies, they can count, they know that there's five here and there are five here, but they will reliably choose that row, five candies. Why? Because the amount of space taken up is super salient to them, we've talked about this before, it misleads them. But they don't just make this error with candies, they make this error systematically. They make this error all over the place in many different domains. It is a systematic error. So I can reliably predict that the four-year-old will not only be making this error, they'll be making errors about seriation, about trying to line objects up in terms of increasing height, they'll have difficulties, etc. So it's not just one error, it's an entire system of errors. And the way you go through a developmental change, what kids do, is they find, right, they find a systematic pattern of errors and they find an insight that's not just about one problem, but an insight that will apply systematically to that, all of those interconnected, interrelated errors. And when they have that systematically penetrative insight, when they've found that nexus of errors so they can massively intervene on themselves, then they go through a developmental change and they grow up cognitively. They mature. And that is what can be going on in the enlightenment experience. By opening up the variation massively, you can not only connect to what's more real and feel more connected to the world, remember the world, you can get below the ways in which you are being held back in your own development. You can zero in on the systematic errors and afford a radic radical developmental change. As the adult is to the child, the sage is to the adult. You can go through, you can get one of the hallmarks of wisdom, what McGee and Barber called seeing through illusion into what is real. Okay, so we're still not done this discussion because this is pivotal trying to understand these higher states of consciousness. It's pivotal to understanding the power, the legacy of the actual revolution, and therefore, what we need to salvage from it. We do not believe in its two-world mythology, but we cannot afford to abandon all of this powerful psychotechnology of interve intervention of self-transformation, of self-transcendence, of the cultivation of wisdom, and ultimately the deep enhancement of meaning in life by bringing about a developmental harmony within and a powerful conformity and connectedness to the world without. So next time, I want to continue and complete the discussion about the higher states of consciousness. Thank you very much for your time. Oh. Um.
mind wandering. So beneficial. <laughs> Good question. Good question. Oh, turn off autoplay. No autoplay. Just, just need to turn off the gosh darn autoplay. That's the problem. All right, anyway, we're back. What's up, guys? Let us know on Spotify what you thought of this episode. We'll be getting into part two of this section on higher states of consciousness next week, so definitely be tuning into that. Like and subscribe if you guys are enjoying the show. I'm going to do a quick uh, summarization of what we saw there in that last bit. Mm-hmm. Trying to figure out where my notes leave off. Do so you know my first note is the question of why is mind-wandering beneficial, and yeah, right. the reason that will be explained is, there is. it enhances the capacity for um, insight. Mm-hmm. We're breaking the frame. And it helps us, like, so when you get mind distracted, you have to return back to yourself and break your framing again. Yeah, so it helps us break up, like, overly rigid frames Mm -hmm. and helps us be more flexible in our comprehension of reality in the world. So, yeah, we'll sleep on it sometimes. We have these disruptive strategies that we use. That's why mindfulness is so helpful because it's a deliberate disruption strategy. You know, like, when I have to think about something, I'm working something out, I'll go to... You know, used to go to like a coffee shop or, you know, sit out in the garden at my local bar or something like that. And there would just be enough chatter and distraction. So it's like when, you know, my brain's getting stuck on something and I'm like having the uh, moment. Oh, somebody says hi. That's a lot of variation in your environment. Yeah. 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 And then, okay, now I can come back to it. And oh, oh, there. Why did I, why didn't I see that before? Yeah. So ways of focusing our attention Mm -hmm. help us generate insight. So these are de-automization practices we can see how we have automatic ways of framing reality that block us from seeing reality accurately such as the nine dot problem there's nine dots in a basically in a square it's like three dots three dots Mm -hmm. three dots so it looks to our brains like a square and that nine dot problem and solving it how can you solve it in so many lines uh, without picking up the pin and it looks easy, but it ends up being really hard. You have to draw outside of the yeah. uh, perceived lines, the illusion that your mind is creating. And we do this all of the time. And this is what happens when we become ideologically possessed. I remember we discussed that when we were talking about the last episode on consciousness. Mm-hmm. So these disruption strategies help increase variation in processing and helps us raise our awareness of what's invariant in our environments, what's not changing, what is constant. So they help strengthen our sense of optimal grip and optimal relation, our capacity to dance with reality. Mm-hmm. So you have good invariances, picking up on the bigger, real complex patterns, being more, granting us a sense of being more in contact with what's really going on because we are actually recognizing real patterns. Mm-hmm. And then we can have bad framing, framing that is blocking. uh, And we have to recognize what is the invariance here. So the notice invariance heuristic allows us to say, what have I not been changing on my variations? Well, so the bad... There's a a systematic system of errors that's occurring here. Yeah, yeah. And we need humility. Humility helps us break our framing. Yeah, so the... You're willing to break your frame, and you're not holding on and attached to it. You know, I identified with it. They're called the in- invariance heuristic. Mm-hmm. What is the not thing that is not changing, and that'll help prevent you from going into the 
creating false framings. Yes, yes. Like the ever excuse. Well, it's not that I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm not the the asshole douchebag. No, it's everybody else. Well, <laughs> this is why we need humility. If, if you so we can okay, find our, if you recognize our parts, like say, film yeah. yourself in every interaction, you'll realize, oh, well, that's the one thing. You know, what's the saying? It's like, you know, if every girl's rejecting you, it's not you. It's not them, dude. Right. It's you. Yeah. 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 Why, don't you, why don't you go use that invariant heuristic on yourself and get yourself straight? <laughs> it's helpful, man. It's so helpful for us, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can see, I can see the resistance against it because, like you said, it does take humility. It takes humility, um, which and is not. That's comfortable. a powerful insight. I mean, it's a powerful argument for for goodness and honesty. You can't develop your wisdom fully unless you have the humility to be willing to break your frames of perception. Mm-hmm. But when we become too identified to our frames of perception, well, even to admit when you know you're when wrong, we become egocentric, like, like, more narcissistic environments mm-hmm. start to fester. Yeah, because like, like it's to, ha- to have an idea is one thing, but to hold on to it so tightly that you can't like say if it's a bad idea, you can't realize it's a bad idea. Yeah, you want cognitive That's, flexibility. Yeah. yeah, we're trying to figure out really complex problems within ourselves and within the wider world. And we get personally offended when you know, <laughs> like, just naturally, the first thing to happen when you realize you're wrong about something is go, <sighs> and then you move we through it and not, you go, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah we don't no, like okay. our assumptions to oh, yeah. be corrected. But if we're willing, actually, if we recognize, oh wait, I'm just trying to find out what's good for one and all. Mm-hmm. What matters most is not me being right, but what is right then that that orientation really helps us that's an orientation to develop wisdom rather than to be stuck Mm -hmm. in rigid frames it's a healthy salience landscape if you will yes um you know you're avoiding the we need this so bad as a Mm -hmm. species right now we need this so bad because not only are we harming ourselves internally but we are harming our civilizations our cultures our capacities for a long-term survival on this planet together yeah that the promise and the potential of a greater levels of peace and accord with one another um yeah we don't want to wipe out these possibilities we want to create the potential all mm. the potential that we can for us to generate insight together together you know this is a this is a broad project and it's okay to be wrong you know you're just going to find out why that is not useful information or helpful or accurate and because we're just trying to figure out how to live together here in increased higher states and higher optimal states of communion and coexistence. We want to live joyfully together, truly. We want to feel more of the good and that be more of our lives. And that can be our lives. That's, that's kind of like a hidden secret that actually living your whole truth well, it is t- the way it takes work it takes it takes a lot work. of work yeah so it's you know how do we how do we encourage anti-laziness mm-hmm. if you will i don't know what the word for it would be but like you know the the opposite of laziness because you know laziness is there for a reason you need to be able to take time and you know like let yourself defrag and incubate on things a little bit but yes. then you know lazy- but we also need to be engaged y- yeah, yeah and be willing to be uncomfortable because the more the more, like the more amount of uncomfortable experiences you can put yourself in, the more comfortably you can be anywhere. Absolutely. Like if you've yeah. ever spent any period of time sleeping on the ground or the floor or in bad right. conditions or whatever, you know you get you can get comfortable just about anywhere. Same thing with like you know if you've got people like peopling issues and you have 
a hard time being around people. You put yourself in a bunch of different situations with people and you get a lot more comfortable. Yeah. Living a life without, without, you know, the, um, you know, negative emotions and bad feelings and pain doesn't make you more comfortable. Like being in the palace that services all your having needs does not make you more comfortable. What makes you more comfortable is experiencing uncomfortability, you know, humbling yeah, yourself, yeah, going, yeah. All th- the going nice through that stuff. process. Because, yeah. Because all the sensory pleasure that you can get does not fill the void in one's soul yeah. to feel that we're in a sense of interrelation with our environments, mm-hmm. a deep sense of interrelation. And so, so yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's all I had to say there. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, we're looking at how to develop ways to find insights into what is good applies to one and all. So we want, we want to find this nexus, the nexus of errors within ourselves, yeah. such as with the example that he gave of the children thinking yeah. that, you know, seven candy spaced apart looks like more Yes, and yes. seven candy close together. Yeah, and it's just because it's more salient. It looks bigger. Well, but that doesn't mean it necessarily is. So we mm-hmm. we grow up, we mature mm-hmm. as we are opening our capacity for variation and framing and reciprocal realization. Yeah. So I guess the attempt of all of this is to become more aware of our systemic errors yes. or systematic errors yes yeah, so errors, we can be more connected or a system of errors yeah. um, understand how we are connected understand yeah. ourselves understand how to zero in and play on that dynamic mm-hmm. play in that dynamic dance and I, I like how he said you know such as the adult is to the kid the sage is to the adult mm-hmm. the sage is the ultimate human mm-hmm. capacity yeah. and we've seen it exhibited so many times as the heroes and so many myths and all the great stories that we love you know it's it's a warrior it's a wizard it's a humble person taking on a great challenge with immense courage and that inspires that more connection and so let's let's keep on telling these stories mm-hmm. so we can help one another see through this the illusions that we become prey to i, I love how we said it's this is pivotal to understanding higher states of consciousness and how humans achieve them and practice them and develop them it's pivotal to understand and the actual revolutions way of incorporating this into their lives is something that we do want Mm -hmm. to hold on to and bring back to life so that we can develop that harmony within ourselves and that deep sense of interconnectivity with the world around us then we will have the meaning that we seek because we are going through a meaning crisis. There's a higher yeah, no, sense of meaninglessness for a lot of people. Right, nobody right can now. do it for you either, which yeah. is the thing. It's not a ser- it's not a service that you can hire out for. It's something, yeah, you can hire a guru or a self help guy that's gonna like a life coach or whatever. But y- at the end of the day, still you just gotta do you it. Do the work within yourself. You if they're gotta good at do it. it. Yeah, you know that's that's where we're. we're, we're birthed into an egalitarian age as in the sense of you have to do you i have to do me and we should all have you know share these techniques these insights these inspirations so we all can become better at grasping the world and grasping each other and mm -hmm. getting all of this but i am you and you are me yeah that too well ultimately everything we do for other people we do for ourselves but the things we do for ourselves and the work we do 
on ourselves we do for other people you're really doing it for so the world it's, it's yes. not one or the other it's both and no yeah you you, know, you are the world yeah and that's that's and the world is you yes we are the world everybody it, it's actually yeah we are yeah in action we are the imminent ex- extensions the, of life the on world this worlding <laughs> yes we are the earth self-reflective extensions interrelating speaking for the trees and the butterflies the bees even the sharks and the tigers and we're helping our environments and one another live in higher states of communion optimal uh progression and growth while maintaining our tried and true we're trying to figure out how to do this all of us together all of us many varied beings that are actually this one thing with something like many eyes and many minds and many hearts working together all self self-aware like separate extensions yet interrelated all feeding into one all building off one another we utilize the language that we have grown together we utilize the insights capacities ways of being and acting and dressing and seeing that we pick up and share with one another and that's that's a beautiful dance it makes sense you know if the world's gonna world and life is gonna life like you you have to make every iteration you possibly can and this iteration of life builds things and wears things that were woven out of other things and you know i won't say looks at things in the world as tools but has the capacity to see affordances and you know Mm -hmm. that's that's suitable that's Yes, thanks to all those that came before us that helped craft the ways of understanding the world, of weaving clothing, of building Mm -hmm. buildings, developing language, and now these psychotechnologies that help us enhance our insight and sense of uh, connectivity, marriage with the world. It almost seems like life, and you could go, you know, we're going to use this as the default base point. This is dog life. Mm -hmm. Like, the reason why we're conscious and cognizant the way we are is because life that seems to be this pinnacle so far of life life has been working itself to get to the point where it can move the world in itself like we do yeah you know we're not just the dominant species on this planet no 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 because we're We're, we're actually we're thinkers and life wants to be evolution life itself that has become self-reflective. Yeah. The self-reflective, aware part of this planet is what so it's we like are. consciousness is part of life's evolution. Yes, it's not just something we have because we're special and we no, we're like it. the no, cutting edge of Earth. But it doesn't mean yeah. that we're better than yeah. we're just the most self-reflective and self-aware and capable yeah. of stewardship. Thus, we must be humble yeah. and recognize how interconnected we are. And we probably won't be the longest lasting either, because you know it seems like you know like crocodilians and stuff like that they've got a pattern that works but there's right. not a, even though crocodiles can you know the crocodilian alligators and crocodiles they can be relatively intelligent as far as lizard beasts and stuff go um mm-hmm. and quite friendly um they don't change you know the the basic body structuring and what a shark does has not changed in a long time but sharks are one of our oldest species so or like the We've we've learned how to evolve through ideas, as yeah, well. and like evolve you know, through our software. And we've only been Homo sapiens sapien for like two hundred, three hundred thousand years, something like that. Yeah, and hominids have only been here for how long? Right, you know, it's very short, but we're very dynamic. 
Yeah. We're like, we're an extremely dynamic species and, and the way we think and the way we evolve within our cognitive processes are very dynamic and yes. very quick. And we have great very powerful. power now. Yeah. Super powerful at affecting the world and each other. Mm -hmm. Thus, we have a greater responsibility for how we utilize that power now. Yeah, well, we have the ability to respond that's we much greater than it's ever been. We are the, we are the stewards. Yeah. And I loved what you were talking about there with egalitarianism, that the age of egalitarian, uh, of, uh, of Aquarius, yeah. and egalitarianism that we're going into, it's not just the, the sexes becoming more in union with one another. It is actually everything about us, our belief systems, everything is coming into an interconnected harmony with one another well, we're figuring out how to tune them in with one another well i think so that's happening culturally it's happening on, on so many levels and that's well my, my idea on this is that's an inspiring thing to see my idea on this is it, it comes down to individual egalitarianism like we all have the same access to massive amounts of information we have access to beautiful lectures like this. For the most part, we have access to food and mm -hmm. shelter. Mm -hmm. But personally, each individual now has to rise to the age and Let use these develop, techniques yeah, to become part of We get to now come this. together and well, utilize and also, all these techniques The responsibility together. is spread out now, too. We yeah. don't have you know lords and ladies oh, yeah, and, yeah. and and you know this is just a beautiful dance yeah it's, it's really what it is and it's just but us letting so we're letting the, our egos down enough to be yeah, able to engage in this dance yeah, together and, and where the the equality aspect is isn't isn't equality like we would normally talk about it now it's it's equal responsibility now we yes. have the ability to respond it's now, a, it's a and we equal should. treatment and equal responsibility. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. you know the days of just complaining about that it was the other guy that's doing all the crap. No, ultimately it comes down to the individual. You. Yeah. It's. It, this is the way that humans have always you know. worked best, and we've developed yeah. this, and we've optimized well, this like over hundreds of thousands of years. Well, like what I was saying while we were outside, you know, the yeah. last age. That's of why Aquarius, we developed partnerships. The yeah. what is it like twenty four thousand years ago was the last age of Aquarius because it's twelve. And each one is 2,000 years or something. So th the last time we were at the upper Paleolithic, you know, what, 24, well, 24,000 years ago. Okay, maybe not then, but we were, what was the terms I used? Okay, so at that point in time, we were coming to grasp at the worlds and the monsters within it. Mm -hmm. And we all individually were doing that and realizing our individual place in the world. Um probably along the period of time where people started recognizing oh what happens in the world is not because you know the gods are angry at me or whatever proto gods are angry at me no it's because of you know things are not angry at me but just like displeased and you can appease them no actually the things i'm doing are messing up things around it it's probably about that period of time right the the responsibility was on the person to figure out their shit within reality now we're getting back to the point where well here we are again trying to figure out our place in the world and the monsters within it but now we're realizing we're the monsters more and more we don't have the lions and tigers and bears oh my eating us anymore we don't have the forces of nature killing us as much as it used to you know mm -hmm. it can be hot outside but we have air conditioning now um you know like there's a you know volcanoes are still a thing but you know natural like bad storms don't kill people like they used to so nature's not even a threat to us as much as it used to be we're the greatest threat to ourselves though. we are though so 
We are though. And and but that gives us a lot of power as well because if it's us that's the threat, well we know us and we're able to work on us. We can't do much about like what the weather's gonna do. If the weather no, wants to storm, it's gonna us, storm. We're an incredibly yes, innovative species, yeah, so we yeah. can find ways to solve. Well, the it's other empowering realizing that the responsibility comes down to us, comes down to me for my own end, mm-hmm. opposed to it being something else or somebody else that's doing it to me or to us. No, it's it's uh, it's us. So we can do something about it because it's it's us. Because yeah. we and are don't us. Just let the power hungry <laughs> become the ones that yeah. decide which direction this world goes. Well, because the this power hungry don't care about us; they together. care about me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the <laughs> Not problem. Not me, but like the me. That's the problem, yeah. and they're really good at playing these systems of divide well, and, and conquer and if you have enough and power and resource you can play that game because you're not as dependent on other people directly because you have enough might power resource whatever you want to just go ahead and make sure that you got you whereas like the normal people everybody on the normal level we really need each other we do like if your shop in town closes down well now we got you know amazon and all that stuff but if your shop in town closes down you ain't getting eggs that day Yes, this is why disruptive strategies are so important. Strategies that help us break our frames, our senses of reality, because we are developing magnified, magnified uh, senses of self-importance, and the ego is basically being coaxed Mm. out right now in our societies in attempts to control us. It's like the sophists are super-powered now. So... We, they're losing their we power. We need to be willing out, but to yeah. to give up the misidentification with our images, with our ideas, with our attached ideals, <laughs> and be willing to grow together in a harmony, in concert, in a reciprocal process mm-hmm. as a, as people. Well, that yeah, that's that's the key word right there is reciprocal. Like our process can't just be we need to exact that one way or the other that reciprocal knowing capacity we need to ratchet that up because we have it within us we also have it collectively we have collective sense making capacities yeah well we're better collectively you know absolutely um, you're going to be covering more angles and you got to do that when you're trying to build sound structures of any kind yeah yeah and and sometimes you know you could have too many chefs in the kitchen but you know yeah, but we give know, up your ideas. Question yeah, everything. Challenge yeah. your own self-conceptions. Challenge your beliefs. Yeah, and Figure make, out how to argue against them so you can argue for them if they end up being true. Don't believe anything that anybody tells you until you've looked into it deeply for yourself and understood the different perspectives on, on it and found what's good for one and all. And Only you, then shall we live up to it. And you can entertain an idea without having to believe it. And that's, you know, like, so if somebody's com- like coming yeah. at you with some, like, don't I, I be don't totally know. certain on anything, just yeah. have levels of yeah. certainty. It's like, okay, I'll entertain that because, like, you are making a persuasive argument. Yeah. That, so well, that seems likely. So, and then I'll look more However, into it. Perhaps, and then, yeah. you know, and let's then, also look at this. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, take your time to look into it and then find the holes in it. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yes, you don't get there that. are manipulators out there trying to manipulate. Yeah. They make money off of it. They and, gain power and control over and it. I it's hope, a global game. Though. I hope there always are to a certain degree because if we don't, have, well, I mean that we, if need we don't that, have yeah. some type of like pushback to keep us sharp, sure. then we get lazy, and then there eventually sure. will be for the again, yeah. and they'll be even better at it because we'll be lazy and soft and squishy, kind of like what has happened to. You know, our societies, they've gotten lazy, soft and squishy, we and we forgot, we forgot yeah. actually how much 
the universe wants to kill you in every yeah. form and how hard it actually really is. And, you know, I'm grateful to live now. Like, it's it's nice. I can get antibiotics if I get a bump tooth. It won't mm-hmm. kill me no more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the Library of Alexandria in my pocket. Yeah. A lot of really Interactive too. wonderful, awesome people that I can, you know, meet and see and do. You know, we've got the best instruments we've ever had. So playing music is great. We, Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. Jesse and I, Jesse from a band, American Dharma. We got a show coming on New Year's New Eve, Year's Eve. December 31st. <sighs> at some point in human time yeah. in history. This year. There's going to be a show at R&K Pub in Hagerstown with American Dharma. Jesse and I were talking about. Is, is that R? The invention N-K of. He, he was R- watching a documentary. He read a book on the invention of the electric guitar mm. and how much that has changed history is uh, is amazing. It's just one person, you know, to you know multiple people working mm-hmm. together ultimately but so real quick though so if people want to cool find story. it is it r n k or is it r and k remember the name of the damn book now r and r and k r and k r and k pub in hagerstown, in hagerstown. Yeah. Yeah. our band american dharma it's gonna On be New rocking Year's out Eve. be playing with disfigure and uh light upon darkness i believe and uh, one tba still and if we got any metal heads out there band coming on out yeah it's gonna be hard rock Heavy, heavy show. Yeah, we'll probably be the yeah, latest thing there. And we still go. We still go pretty sludgy. Rock into the new year. In flames. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all the notes I got, and it's it's getting on about that time. Indeed, indeed. This has been a good episode. Thank mm-hmm. you guys Looking for tuning two. in with us. Yeah, look forward to part two of Higher States of Consciousness. We're just gonna keep going deeper and deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole. But look forward to John Brabakey breaking down mm-hmm. why these psychotechnologies, why plant medicines and psychedelics and fasting and prayer and meditation, all of these things are actually so helpful, so pivotal to our understanding and our ability, capacity to optimize with our environments and help us awaken from the meaning crisis that our species now finds itself. The age so of many Aquarius. words and syllables. It's been fun. It's been real. And we it's love been you really guys. Fun. All these things at once, simultaneous. Like, yeah, we're gonna get off to find some food and get some rest. And I hope you guys are doing well out there. Happy holidays to everybody. Make sure to like and subscribe. Share the show with friends and fam if you like what's going on here. And we will see you next time. Peace.